Herbert Richardson was a Vietnam War veteran whose nightmarish experiences and brutal conditions left him traumatized and scarred. He enlisted in the Army in 1964 at the age of 18, at a time when America was heavily involved in combat. He was assigned to the 11th Aviation Group, 1st Cavalry Division, and was sent to Camp Radcliffe in Anqui, Vietnam. The camp was near Pleiku, an area known for extremely heavy fighting in the mid 1960s. Herbert endured perilous missions in which he saw friends get killed or seriously injured. On one mission, his entire platoon was killed in an ambush, and he was severely injured. He regained consciousness coated in the blood of his fellow soldiers. He was disoriented and unable to move. It didn't take long before he experienced a complete mental breakdown. He attempted suicide after suffering severe headaches. Despite multiple referrals from commanding officers for psychiatric evaluation, he remained in combat for seven months before his crying outbursts and uncommunicative withdrawal resulted in an honorable discharge in December 1966. Not surprisingly, his trauma followed him home to Brooklyn, New York, where he had nightmares, suffered disabling headaches. And sometimes ran out of his house screaming, "Incoming!" He married and had children, but his post-traumatic stress disorder continued to undermine his ability to manage his behavior. He ended up in a veterans' hospital in New York City, where he had a slow, difficult recovery from severe head pain associated with his war injuries. Herbert became one of thousands of combat veterans who end up in jail or prison after completing their military service. One of the country's least discussed post-war problems is how frequently combat veterans bring the traumas of war back with them, and are incarcerated after returning to their communities. By the mid-1980s, nearly 20% of the people in jails and prisons in the United States had served in the military, while the rate declined in the 1990s as the shadows cast by the Vietnam War began to recede. It has picked up again as a result of the military conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Herbert's care at the Veterans Hospital in New York City slowly allowed him to recover. He eventually met a nurse there, a woman from Dothan, Alabama, whose compassionate care made him feel comfortable and hopeful for the first time, perhaps in his entire life. When she was around, he felt alive and believed things would be all right. She had saved his life. When she moved back home to Alabama, Herbert followed. He tried to date her and even told her he wanted to marry her. At first, she resisted because she knew that Herbert was still suffering the effects of his time in combat. But ultimately, she gave in. They had a brief, intimate relationship, and Herbert had never been happier. He became intensely protective of his girlfriend, but she began to see his desperate and relentless focus on her as something closer to obsessive need than love. She tried to end the relationship. After months of unsuccessfully trying to create distance from Herbert, she finally insisted that he stay away. Instead, Herbert moved even closer to her home in Dothan, which elevated her anxieties. It got to the point where she refused to allow him to see her, talk to her, or get anywhere near her. Herbert was convinced that she was just confused and would eventually come back to him. He was deluded by obsession. His logic and reasoning became corrupted. Irrational and increasingly dangerous. 
Herbert was not unintelligent. In fact, he was quite smart, with a particular aptitude for electronics and mechanics, and he had a big heart. But he was still recovering from the trauma of the war, as well as some serious traumas that preceded his military experience. His mother had died when he was just three years old, and he had struggled with drugs and alcohol before he decided to enlist. The horrors of war had added a new level of distress to an already damaged psyche. He came up with an idea to win back his girlfriend. He decided that if she felt threatened, she would come to him for protection. He concocted a tragically misguided plan. He would construct a small bomb and place it on her front porch. He would detonate the bomb and then run to her aid to save her, and then they would live happily ever after. It was the kind of reckless use of explosives that wouldn't have been sensible in a combat zone, much less in a poor black neighborhood in Dothan, Alabama. One morning, Herbert completed his assembly of the bomb and placed it on his former girlfriend's porch. The woman's niece and another little girl came out instead and saw the peculiar package. The ten-year-old niece was drawn to the odd bag with the clock on it and picked up the device. She shook the clock to see if it would tick, which triggered a violent explosion. The child was killed instantly, and her twelve-year-old friend, who was standing next to her, was traumatized. Herbert knew both children. In this community, children were always roaming the streets looking for something to do. Herbert loved kids and would invite them into his yard, pay them to do errands, and talk to them. He started making cereal and cooking for the kids who would wander by. The two girls had come by his house for breakfast. Herbert, watching the house from across the street, was devastated. He had planned to run to his girlfriend's aid when the bomb exploded, to reinforce his readiness to protect her and to keep her safe. When the child picked up the bomb and it detonated, Herbert ran across the street and found himself in a circle of grieving neighbors. It didn't take long for police to make an arrest. They found pipes and other bomb-making materials in Herbert's car and front yard. Because the victims were black and poor, this wasn't the kind of case that would usually be prosecuted as a capital crime. But Herbert wasn't local. His identity as an outsider, a northerner, and the nature of the crime seemed to generate heightened contempt from law enforcement officials. Placing a bomb anywhere in Dothan, even in a poor section of town. Posed a different kind of threat than typical domestic violence. The prosecutor argued that Herbert was not just tragically misguided and reckless; he was evil. The state sought the death penalty. After striking all of the black prospective jurors in a county that is 28% black, the prosecutor told the all-white jury in his closing argument that a conviction was appropriate because Herbert was associated with black Muslims from New York City and deserved no mercy. Alabama's capital statute requires that any murder eligible for the death penalty be intentional, but it was clear that Herbert had no intent to kill the child. The state decided to invoke an unprecedented theory of transferred intent to make the crime eligible for the death penalty. But Herbert had no intention to kill anyone. Herbert was advised to deny any culpability, but ultimately argued that this was reckless murder, not capital murder, which could be punished with life imprisonment. But not the death penalty. During the trial, the appointed defense lawyer presented no evidence about Herbert's background, his military service, his trauma from the war, his relationship with the victim, his obsession with the girlfriend. Nothing. 
Alabama statute at the time limited what court-appointed lawyers could be paid for their out-of-court preparation time to one thousand dollars. So the lawyer spent almost no time on the case. The trial lasted just over a day, and the judge quickly condemned Herbert to death. Following the imposition of the death sentence, Herbert's appointed lawyer, who was later disbarred for poor performance in other cases, told Herbert that he didn't see any reason to appeal the conviction or sentence because the trial had been as fair as he could expect. Herbert reminded him that he'd been sentenced to death. He wanted to appeal no matter how unlikely the prospects, but his lawyer filed no brief. Herbert was confined on death row for eleven years until it was his time to face Yellow Mama. A volunteer lawyer had challenged the intent questions in a desperate appeal, but was unsuccessful. Herbert's execution was now set for August eighteen, just three weeks away. After my call with Herbert, I filed a flurry of stay motions in various courts. I knew the odds were low that we would block the execution. By the late 1980s, the U.S. Supreme Court had grown impatient with challenges to capital punishment. The court had justified reauthorization of the death penalty in the mid-1970s on the promise that proceedings would be subject to heightened scrutiny and meticulous compliance with the law, but then began to retreat from the existing review procedures. The court's rulings had become increasingly hostile to death row prisoners, and less committed to the notion that death is different, requiring more careful review. The court decided to bar claims from federal habeas corpus review if they weren't initially presented to state courts. Federal courts were then forbidden to consider new evidence unless it was first presented to state courts. The court began insisting that federal judges defer more to state court rulings, which tended to be more indulgent of errors and defects in capital proceedings. In the 1980s. The court rejected a constitutional challenge to imposing the death penalty on juveniles, upheld the death penalty for disabled people suffering from mental retardation, and, in a widely condemned opinion, found no constitutional violation in the extreme racial disparities that could be seen throughout most death penalty jurisdictions. By the end of the decade, some justices had become openly critical of the review that death penalty cases received. Chief Justice William Rehnquist urged restrictions on death penalty appeals and the endless efforts of lawyers to stop executions. Let's get on with it, he famously declared at a bar association event in 1988. Finality, not fairness, had become the new priority in death penalty jurisprudence. Two weeks after my first conversation with Herbert Richardson, I was frantically trying to get a stay of execution. Even though it was very late in the process, I was hoping that we might win a stay when I saw some of the compelling issues in Herbert's case. While his guilt wasn't really in question, there were persuasive reasons why this case should not have been a capital murder case, above and beyond the absence of a specific intent to kill. And even if you disregard that part of it, there was strong evidence that the death penalty should not be imposed because of Herbert's trauma, military service, and childhood difficulties. None of this compelling mitigating evidence was presented at trial, and it should have been. The death penalty can be imposed fairly only after carefully considering all the reasons why death might not be the appropriate sentence, and that didn't happen in Herbert's case. I was increasingly becoming convinced that Herbert was facing execution because he had been an easy target. He was unaided, 
and easily condemned by a system that was inattentive to the precise legal requirements of capital punishment. I was deeply distressed that, had he gotten the right help at the right time, Herbert would not be on death row with an execution date in less than two weeks. I asked several courts to stay Herbert's execution because of his ineffective lawyer, racial bias during the trial, the inflammatory comments made by the prosecutor, and the lack of mitigation evidence presented. Each court said, too late. We got a hastily scheduled hearing in the trial court in Dothan, where I tried to present evidence that the bomb Herbert had constructed was designed to go off at a certain time. I found an expert to testify that the bomb was a timed device and not intended to kill on contact. I knew that the court would probably conclude that this evidence should have been presented at trial or in prior proceedings, but I hoped that the judge could be persuaded. Herbert was in court with me, and we both immediately recognized the lack of interest on the judge's face. This heightened Herbert's anxiety. He began a whispered dialogue with me, imploring me to get the testifying expert to say things about his intent that were really outside the expert's knowledge. He became contentious and started making comments that were audible to the judge. Meanwhile, the judge kept stressing that the evidence wasn't newly discovered and should have been presented at trial, so it couldn't create a basis for a stay of execution. I asked for a brief recess to try and calm Herbert down. He's not saying what I need him to say. His breathing was panicked. He held his head and told me he had a severe headache. I didn't intend to kill anybody, and he has to explain that, he cried. I tried to comfort him. Mr. Richardson, we've covered this. The expert isn't allowed to speak to your mental state. He's testified that the bomb was designed to be detonated, but he can't really explain your motivations. The court won't permit that, and he really can't speak to that. They're not even paying attention to what he's saying, he said, sadly rubbing his temples. I know, but remember this is just the first step. We didn't expect much from this judge, but this will help us on appeal. I know this is frustrating for you. He looked at me worriedly before sighing in resignation. He sat glumly through the rest of the hearing, holding his head, which I found even more disheartening than when he was argumentative and distraught. Because I hadn't hired any lawyers yet, I didn't have co-counsel to sit with me and help manage documents or help with the defendant during the hearing. At the end of the proceeding, Herbert was shackled and sent back to death row, vexed, disappointed, and unhappy. I wasn't feeling much better as I packed up my things and headed out of the courtroom. It would have been nice to debrief with someone, to evaluate whether what was presented might provide a basis for a stay. I had no expectation that the local judge would grant a stay, but I was hopeful that maybe a reviewing court would recognize that this wasn't an intentional killing and that a stay should be granted. So much was going on that I couldn't objectively evaluate if we had presented enough evidence to change the picture of the case. I mostly felt bad that I'd left Herbert in such a distraught state. On my way out, I saw a group of black women and children huddled together in the back of the courtroom. Seven or eight of them were watching me intensely. The hearing had been set in the late afternoon when there were no other proceedings scheduled. I was curious about who these people might be, but honestly, I was too tired to really care. I smiled and nodded a weary greeting to the three women who seemed most focused on me, 
which they took as a cue to approach me as I was about to walk out the door. The woman who spoke seemed nervous and somewhat fearful. She spoke hesitantly. I'm Rena May's mother, the, the victim's mother. They said they would help us, but they never did. Mary Lynn can't hear right. Her hearing ain't never been right since that bomb. And her sister has nerve problems. I got them too. We were hoping you, you would help us. The stunned look on my face prompted her to say more. I know you're busy. It's just that we could use the help. I realized that she'd cautiously offered her hand to me as she spoke, and I held it in mine. I'm so very sorry you haven't received the help you've been promised, but I actually represent Herbert Richardson in this case. I said as gently as I could, We know that. I know you might not be able to do anything right now, but when this is over, can you help us? They said we'd get some money for medical help and help for my daughter's hearing. A young woman had quietly approached the woman as she spoke to me and embraced her. While she was probably in her early twenties, she acted in every other respect like a very small child. She leaned her head into her mother's side like a much younger child would and looked at me sadly. Another woman approached and spoke somewhat defiantly. I'm her auntie, she said. We don't believe in killing people. I wasn't exactly sure what she was trying to say, but I looked at her and replied, Yes, I don't believe in killing people either. The aunt seemed to relax a little. All this grieving is hard. We can't cheer for that man you're trying to help, but don't want to have to grieve for him, too. There shouldn't be no more killing behind this. I don't know what I can do to help you all, but I do want to help. Please contact me after August 18, and I'll see what I can find out. The aunt then asked me if she could have her son write to me because he was in prison and needed a lawyer. She sighed with relief when I gave her my card. As we all left the courthouse, we offered each other solemn goodbyes. We'll pray for you, the aunt said as they departed. On the way to my car, I considered asking them to say something to the prosecutor and state lawyers about not wanting Mr. Richardson to be executed, although it was clear that the state wasn't acting on behalf of these victims. The courtroom had been filled with state lawyers and other officials watching the hearing, but they had long since fled the courthouse without so much as a word to any of the battered souls standing in the back of the room. I was haunted by the tragic irony that they felt I was their best hope for help. The trial judge had denied our request for a stay of execution by the time I got back to Montgomery. He ruled our evidence was untimely, meaning that he could not consider it. With less than a week before the execution, the next few days involved one frantic filing after the next. Finally, on the day before the execution, I filed a petition for review and a motion for a stay of execution in the U.S. Supreme Court. Even in death penalty cases, the court grants review only in a small percentage of the cases filed. A petition for certiorari, a request to review a lower court's ruling, is very rarely granted. But I'd known all along that the Supreme Court was our best chance for a stay of execution. Even when lower courts granted a stay, the state would appeal so the Supreme Court would almost always make the final decision to permit an execution to proceed or not. The execution was scheduled for 12.01 a.m. on August 18. I had finally finished the petition and faxed it to the court late on the night of August 16, 
and had spent the next morning in my Montgomery office, waiting anxiously for the court's decision. I tried to busy myself by reading files and other cases, including Walter McMillan's. I didn't expect we'd hear from the court until the afternoon, but that didn't keep me from staring at the phone all morning. Whenever the phone rang, my pulse quickened. Eva and Doris, our receptionist, knew that I was anxiously awaiting the call. We had submitted an extensive clemency petition to the governor with affidavits from family members and color photographs, but I didn't expect anything in response. The petition detailed Herbert's military service and explained why military veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder are worthy of compassion. I wasn't very hopeful. Michael Lindsay had received a life verdict from the jury and was executed instead. Horace Duncans was intellectually disabled, and the governor had not spared him either. Herbert would likely be seen as even less sympathetic. I spoke with Herbert regularly during the day by phone to let him know there was no news. I couldn't rely on the prison to get a message to him if the court ruled, so I asked him to call me every two hours. Whatever the news, I wanted him to hear it from someone who cared about him. Herbert had met a woman from Mobile with whom he had corresponded over the years. They had decided to get married a week before the execution. Herbert had no money, nothing to offer her if he was executed. But he was a military veteran, so his survivors were entitled to receive an American flag upon his death. He designated his new wife as the person to whom the flag should be presented. In the days leading up to the execution, it seemed that Herbert was more concerned about his flag than his impending execution. He kept asking me to check with the government about how his flag would be delivered and urging me to get a commitment in writing. His new wife's family had agreed to spend the last few hours with Herbert before the execution. The prison allowed family members to stay until about 10 p.m., when they would begin to prepare the condemned for execution. I was still in my office waiting to receive word from the Supreme Court. When the clock passed 5 p.m. without any news, I allowed myself to become cautiously hopeful. If the court wasn't troubled by anything we'd presented... I expected an earlier ruling on our motion for a stay. So the later it got, the more encouraged I became. At 6 p.m., I was pacing in my small office, nervously running through the possibilities of what the court might be debating so close to the execution hour. Eva and our new investigator, Brenda Lewis, waited with me. Finally, a little before 7 p.m., the phone rang. The clerk of the court was on the line. Mr. Stevenson? I'm calling to let you know that the court has just entered an order in case number 89-5395. The motion for a stay of execution and petition for writ of certiorari have been denied. We'll fax copies of the order to your office shortly. And with that, the conversation ended. When I hung up, all I could think was, why would I need a copy of the order? To whom did the clerk think I would show it? In a matter of hours, Herbert would be dead. There would be no more appeals, no more records to keep. I'm not sure why I was struck by these peculiar details. Maybe thinking about the procedural absurdities of the court's order was less overwhelming than thinking about its meaning. I had promised Herbert I would be with him during the execution, and it took me a few minutes to realize I needed to move quickly to get to the prison two hours away.
I jumped in my car and raced to Atmore. As I drove down the interstate to reach the prison, I noticed the long rays of sunlight retreating even as the heat of the Alabama summer persisted. When I arrived at the prison, it was completely dark. Outside the prison entrance were dozens of men with guns sitting on the backs of trucks that lined the long road to the prison parking area. They were state troopers, local police officers, deputy sheriffs, and what appeared to be part of a National Guard unit. I don't know why the state felt they needed a militia to guard the entrance to the prison on the night of an execution. It was surreal to see all of these armed men gathered near midnight to make sure a life would be taken without incident. It fascinated me that someone thought there might be some violent armed resistance to the scheduled execution of an indigent black man. I entered the prison and saw an older white woman, the correctional officer who managed the visitation yard. I had become a regular at death row visiting my new clients at least once a month, so she saw me frequently but had never been particularly friendly. Tonight she approached me with unusual warmth and familiarity when I arrived. I thought she was going to hug me. Men in suits and ties hovered in the lobby, eyeing me suspiciously as I walked into the visitation room at a little past nine. The visitation area at Holman is a large, circular room, surrounded by glass so that officers can look in from any vantage point. There are a dozen small tables with chairs inside for visiting family who come on visitation days, typically scheduled two or three times a month. During the week of a scheduled execution, only the condemned prisoner facing a scheduled death is permitted to have family visits. When I got inside the visiting room, the family had less than an hour left with Herbert. He was calmer than I'd ever seen him. He smiled at me when I walked in and gave me a hug. Hey, y'all, this is my lawyer. He said it with a pride that was surprising and moving to me. Hello, everyone, I said. Herbert still had his arm around my shoulder, and I wanted to say something comforting but couldn't think of anything before Herbert jumped in again. I told the prison people that I want all my possessions distributed just as I've said, or my lawyer will sue you till you all have to work for him. He chuckled and people laughed. I met Herbert's bride and her family and spent the next 45 minutes with one eye on the clock, knowing that at 10 p.m. the guards would take Herbert to the back and we would never see him alive again. Herbert tried to keep things light. He told his family how he had persuaded me to take his case and brag that I only represented people who were smart and charming. He's too young to have represented me at trial, but if he had been there, I wouldn't be on death row now. He said it with a smile, but I was starting to feel shaken. I was really struck at how hard he was working to make everyone around him feel better in the face of his own death. I'd never seen him so energetic and gracious. His family and I smiled and laughed, but all of us felt the strain of the moment. His wife became more and more tearful as the minutes ticked away. Shortly before 10 p.m., the commissioner of the Alabama Department of Corrections, the warden, and several other men wearing suits gestured to the visitation officer. She came into the room meekly and regretfully said, It's time, folks. We've got to end the visit. Say your goodbyes. I watched the men in the hallway. They had clearly been expecting the officer to do something more decisive and effective. They wanted things to proceed on schedule and were clearly ready to move to the next stage to prepare for the execution. One of the state officials walked over to the guard when she left the room and pointed at his watch. 
Inside the room, Herbert's wife began to sob. She put her arms around his neck and refused to let him go. After a couple of minutes, her crying turned into groaning, distressed, and desperate. The officials in the lobby were growing more impatient and gestured at the visitation officer who came back into the room. I'm sorry, she said as firmly as she could muster, but you have to leave now. She looked at me and I looked away. Herbert's wife began sobbing again. Her sister and other family members began to cry too. Herbert's wife grabbed him even more tightly. I hadn't thought about how difficult this moment would be. It was surreal in a way I hadn't anticipated. In an instant, a flood of sadness and tragedy had overtaken everyone, and I began to worry that it would be impossible for this family to leave Herbert. By now, the officers were angry. I looked through the window and saw the warden radio for more officers to come into the area. Someone else gestured for the officer to go back into the room and bring the family members out. I heard them tell her not to come out without the family. The officer looked frantic. Despite her uniform, she'd always seemed a little out of place at the prison, and she looked especially uncomfortable now. She had once volunteered to me that her grandson wanted to be a lawyer and that she was hoping he would. She looked around the room nervously and then came up to me. She had tears in her eyes and looked at me desperately. Please, please, help me get these people out of here, please. I began to worry that things were going to get ugly, but I couldn't sort out what to do. It seemed impossibly hard for them to expect people to just calmly abandon someone they loved so that he could be executed. I wanted to prevent things from getting out of control but felt powerless to do anything. By this time, Herbert's wife had started saying loudly, I'm not going to leave you. Herbert had made a peculiar request the week before the execution. He said that if he was executed as scheduled, he wanted me to get the prison to play a recording of a hymn, the old rugged cross, as he walked to the electric chair. I had been slightly embarrassed to raise the request when I spoke with prison officials, but to my utter amazement, they had agreed to do it. I remembered as a child that they always sang this hymn at somber moments during church services, on Communion Sundays and Good Friday. It was sad like few other hymns I'd heard. I don't know why exactly, but I started to hum it as I saw more uniformed officers enter the vestibule outside the visitation room. It seemed like something that might help, but help what? After a few minutes, the family joined me. I went over to Herbert's wife as she held him tightly, sobbing softly. I whispered to her, We have to let him go. Herbert saw the officers lining up outside, and he pulled away from her slowly and told me to take her out of the room. Herbert's wife clung to me and sobbed hysterically as I led her out of the visitation room with her family tearfully following. The experience was heartbreaking, and I wanted to cry. But I just kept humming instead. The prison had made arrangements for me to go back to the death chamber in about an hour to be with Herbert before the execution. Although I had worked on several death penalty cases with clients who had execution dates, I'd never before been present at an execution. In the cases where I had actually been counsel for the condemned while I was in Georgia, we'd always won stays of execution. I grew anxious thinking about witnessing the spectacle of a man being electrocuted, burned to death in front of me. I'd been so focused on obtaining the stay and then on what to say to Herbert when I got to the prison that I hadn't actually thought about witnessing the execution. I no longer wanted to be there for that, 
I didn't want to abandon Herbert. To leave him in a room alone with people who wanted him dead made me realize that I couldn't back out. All of a sudden, the room felt incredibly hot, like there was no air anywhere. The visitation officer came up to me after I had escorted the family out and whispered in my ear, Thank you. I was vexed by her thinking of me as an accomplice and didn't know what to say. When there were less than thirty minutes before the execution, they took me back to the cell next to the execution chamber, deep inside the prison where they were holding Herbert until it was time to put him in the electric chair. They had shaved the hair off his body to facilitate a clean execution. The state had done nothing to modify the electric chair since the disastrous Evans execution. I thought about the botched execution of Horace Duncans a month earlier and became even more distraught. I had tried to read up on what should happen at an execution. I had some misguided thought that I could intervene if they did something incorrectly. Herbert was much more emotional when he saw me than he'd been in the visitation room. He looked shaken, and it was clear that he was upset. It must have been humiliating to be shaved in preparation for an execution. He looked worried, and when I walked into the chamber, he grabbed my hands and asked if we could pray. And we did. When we were done, his face took on a distant look, and then he turned to me. Hey, man, thank you. I, I know this ain't easy for you either, but I'm grateful to you for standing with me. I smiled and gave him a hug. His face sagged with an unbearable sadness. It's been a very strange day, Brian, really strange. Most people who feel fine don't get to think all day about this being their last day alive with certainty that they will be killed. It's different than being in Vietnam, much stranger. He nodded at all the officers who were milling about nervously. It's been strange for them, too. All day long, people have been asking me, what can I do to help you? When I woke up this morning, they kept coming to me. Can we get you some breakfast? At midday, they came to me. Can we get you some lunch? All day long. What can we do to help you? This evening, what do you want for your meal? How can we help you? Do you need stamps for your letters? Do you want water? Do you want coffee? Can we get you the phone? How can we help you? Herbert sighed and looked away. It's been so strange, Brian. More people have asked me what they can do to help me in the last 14 hours of my life than ever asked me in the years when I was coming up. He looked at me and his face twisted in confusion. I gave Herbert one last long hug, but I was thinking about what he'd said. I thought of all the evidence that the court had never reviewed about his childhood. I was thinking about all of the trauma and difficulty that had followed him home from Vietnam. I couldn't help but ask myself, where were these people when he really needed them? Where were all of these helpful people when Herbert was three and his mother died? Where were they when he was seven and trying to recover from physical abuse? Where were they when he was a young teen struggling with drugs and alcohol? Where were they when he returned from Vietnam, traumatized and disabled? I saw the cassette tape recorder that had been set up in the hallway and watched an officer bring over a tape. The sad strains of the old rugged cross began to play as they pulled Herbert away from me. There was a shamefulness about the experience of Herbert's execution I couldn't shake. Everyone I saw at the prison seemed surrounded by a cloud of regret and remorse. The prison officials had pumped themselves up to carry out the execution with determination and resolve, but even they revealed extreme discomfort and some measure of shame. 
Maybe I was imagining it, but it seemed that everyone recognized that what was taking place was wrong. Abstractions about capital punishment were one thing, but the details of systematically killing someone who is not a threat are completely different. I couldn't stop thinking about it on the trip home. I thought about Herbert, about how desperately he wanted the American flag he earned through his military service in Vietnam. I thought about his family and about the victim's family and the tragedy the crime created for them. I thought about the visitation officer, the Department of Corrections officials, the men who were paid to shave Herbert's body so that he could be killed more efficiently. I thought about the officers who had strapped him into the chair. I kept thinking that no one could actually believe that this was a good thing to do, or even a necessary thing to do. The next day, there were articles in the press about the execution. Some state officials expressed happiness and excitement that an execution had taken place, but I knew that none of them had actually dealt with the details of killing Herbert. In debates about the death penalty, I had started arguing that we would never think it was humane to pay someone to rape people convicted of rape, or assault and abuse someone guilty of assault or abuse. Yet we were comfortable killing people who kill, in part because we think we can do it in a manner that doesn't implicate our own humanity the way that raping or abusing someone would. I couldn't stop thinking that we don't spend much time contemplating the details of what killing someone actually involves. I went back to my office the next day with renewed energy. I picked up my other case files and made updated plans for how to assist each client to maximize the chance of avoiding an execution. Eventually, I recognized that all of my fresh resolve didn't change much. I was really only trying to reconcile myself to the realities of Herbert's death. I was comforted by the exercise just the same. I felt more determined to recruit staff and obtain resources to meet the growing challenges of providing legal assistance to condemned people. Eva and I talked about a few people who had expressed interest in joining our staff. There was some new financial support possible from a foundation, and that afternoon we finally received the office equipment we had ordered. By the end of the day, I was persuaded things would improve, even while I felt newly burdened by the weight of it all. Chapter 5 Of the Coming of John It would have been so much easier if he had been out in the woods hunting by himself when that girl was killed. Armilla Hand, Walter McMillan's older sister, paused while the crowd in the small trailer called out in affirmation. I sat on a couch and looked out at the nearly two dozen family members who were staring at me as Armilla spoke. At least then we could understand how it might be possible for him to have done this. She paused and looked down at the floor of the room where we had gathered. But because we were standing next to him that whole morning, we know where he was. We know what he was doing. People hummed in agreement as her voice grew louder and more distraught. It was the kind of wordless testimony of struggle and anguish I heard all the time growing up in a small rural black church. Just about everybody in here was standing next to him, talking to him, laughing with him, eating with him. Then the police come along months later, say he killed somebody miles away at the same time we're standing next to him. Then they take him away when you know it's a lie. She was now struggling to speak. Her hands were trembling, and the emotion in her voice was making it hard to get her words out. We were with him all day. What are we supposed to do, Mr. Stevenson? Tell us, what are we supposed to do with that? Her face twisted in pain. I feel like I've been convicted, too. 
The small crowd responded to each statement with shouts of yes, and that's right. I feel like they done put me on death row too. What do we tell these children about how to stay out of harm's way when you can be at your own house, minding your own business, surrounded by your entire family, and they still put some murder on you that you ain't do and send you to death row? I sat on the crowded sofa in my suit, staring into the face of a lot of pain. I hadn't expected to have such an intense meeting when I arrived. Folks were desperate for answers and trying to reconcile themselves to a situation that made no sense. I was struggling to think of something appropriate to say when a younger woman spoke up. Johnny D could have never done this no kind of way, whether we was with him or not, she said, using the nickname Walter's family and friends had given him. He's just not like that. The younger woman was Walter's niece. She continued with her rebuttal to the very idea that Walter would need an alibi, which seemed to generate support among the crowd. I was relieved to have the pressure off me for a moment as Walter's large family seemed to be moving toward some sort of debate over whether Walter's character rendered an alibi unnecessary or even insulting. It had been a long day. I was no longer sure what time it was, but I knew it was very late, and I was wearing down. I'd spent several intense hours on death row earlier in the day with Walter, going over his trial transcript. Before my meeting with Walter, I'd spent time with other new clients on the row. Their cases weren't active and there were no deadlines on the horizon, but I hadn't seen them since the Richardson execution, and they had been anxious to talk. Now that Walter's case record was complete, appeal pleadings would be due soon, and time was critical. I should have returned to Montgomery directly from the prison, but Walter's family wanted to meet, and since they were less than an hour from the prison, I had promised to come to Monroeville. Walter's wife, Minnie Bell McMillan, and his daughter Jackie were waiting patiently when I pulled up to the McMillan's dilapidated house in Repton, which was off the main road leading to Monroeville. Walter had told me I would know I was close when I passed a cluster of liquor stores on the county line between Conecuh and Monroe counties. Monroe County is a dry county where no alcoholic beverages can be sold. For the convenience of its thirsty citizens, several package stores mark the boundary with Conecuh County. Walter's house was just a few miles from the county line. I pulled into the driveway and was surprised at the profound disrepair. This was a poor family's home. The front porch was propped on three cinder blocks, piled precariously beneath wood flooring that showed signs of rot. The blue window panes were in desperate need of paint, and a makeshift set of stairs that didn't connect to the structure was the only access to the home. The yard was littered with abandoned car parts, tires, broken pieces of furniture, and other detritus. Before getting out of my car, I decided to put on my well-worn suit jacket, even though I had noticed earlier that it was missing buttons on both jacket sleeves. Many walked out the front door and apologized for the appearance of the yard as I carefully stepped onto the porch. She kindly invited me inside while a woman in her early twenties lingered behind her. Let me fix something for you to eat. You've been at the prison all day, she said. Minnie looked tired, but otherwise appeared as I had imagined, patient and strong, based on Walter's descriptions and my own guesses from our phone conversations. Because the state had made Walter's affair with Karen Kelly part of its case in court, the trial had been especially difficult for Minnie. But she looked like she was still standing strong. Oh no, thank you, I appreciate it, but it's fine. Walter and I ate some things on the visitation yard. They don't have nothing on that prison yard but chips and sodas. Let me cook you something good. That's very kind, I appreciate it, but I'm really okay. I know you've been working all day, too. Well, yes, 
I'm on 12-hour shifts at the plant. Then people don't want to hear nothing about your business, your sickness, your nerves, your out-of-town guests, and definitely nothing about your family problems. She didn't sound angry or bitter, just sad. She walked over to me, gently looped her arm with mine, and slowly led me into the house. We sat down on a sofa in the crowded living room. Chairs that didn't match were piled with papers and clothes. Her grandchildren's toys were scattered on the floor. Minnie sat close to me, almost leaning on me as she continued speaking softly. Work people tell you to be there, so you gotta go. I'm trying to get her through school, and it ain't easy. She nodded to her daughter Jackie, who looked back at her mother sympathetically. Jackie walked across the room and sat near us. Walter and Minnie had mentioned their children, Jackie, Johnny, and Boot, to me several times. Jackie's name was always followed by She's in College. I had begun to think of her as Jackie She's in College McMillan. All of the kids were in their twenties but still very close and protective of their mother. I told them about my visit with Walter. Minnie hadn't been to the prison in several months and seemed grateful that I had spent some time there. I went over the appeals process with them and talked about the next steps in the case. They confirmed Walter's alibi and updated me on all the rumors in town currently circulating about the case. I believe it was that old man Miles Jackson who done it, Minnie said emphatically. I think it's the new owner Rick Blair, Jackie said. Everybody knows they found a white man's skin under that girl's fingernails where she had fought whoever killed her. Well, we're going to get to the truth, I said. I tried to sound confident, but given what I'd read in the trial transcript, I thought it very unlikely that the police would turn over the evidence to me or let me see the files and the materials collected from the crime scene. Even in the transcript, the law enforcement officers who had investigated Walter seemed lawless. These police put Walter on death row while he was a pretrial detainee. I feared that they would not scrupulously follow the legal requirement to turn over all exculpatory evidence that could help him prove his innocence. We talked for well over an hour, or they talked while I listened. You could tell how traumatizing the last eighteen months since Walter's arrest had been. The trial was the worst, Minnie said. They just ignored what we told them about Johnny D. being home. Nobody has explained to me why they did that. Why did they do that? She looked at me as if she honestly hoped I could provide an answer. This trial was constructed with lies, I said. I was wary about expressing such strong opinions to Walter's family because I hadn't investigated the case enough to be sure there was more evidence to convict Walter. But reading the record of his trial had outraged me, and I felt that anger returning, not just about the injustice done to Walter, but also about the way it had burdened the entire community. Everyone in the poor black community who had talked to me about the case had expressed hopelessness. This one massive miscarriage of justice had afflicted the whole community with despair and made it hard for me to be dispassionate. One lie after the other, I continued. People were fed so many lies that by the time y'all started telling the truth, it was just easier to believe you were the ones who were lying. It frustrates me to even read it in the trial record, so I can only imagine how you all feel. The phone rang and Jackie jumped up to answer it. She came back a few minutes later. Eddie said that people are getting restless. They want to know when he's going to be there. Minnie stood up and straightened her dress. Well, we should probably get going down there. They've been waiting most of the day for you. When I looked confused, Minnie smiled. 
Oh, I told the rest of the family we would bring you down there, since it's so hard to find where they live if you've never been there before. His sisters, nephews, nieces, and other folks all want to meet you. I tried not to show my alarm, but I was getting worried about the time. We piled into my two-door Corolla, which was stacked with papers, trial transcripts, and court records. You must spend your money on other things, Jackie joked as we pulled away. Yes, expensive suits are my spending priority these days, I replied. There's nothing wrong with your suit or your car, Minnie said protectively. I followed their directions down a long, winding dirt road full of impossible turns through a heavily wooded area. As darkness fell around us, the road twisted through dense forests for several miles until it came to a short, narrow bridge with room for only one car to pass. It looked shaky and unstable, so I slowed the car to a stop. It's okay. It hasn't rained that much, and that's the only time when it's really a problem, Minnie said. What kind of problem? I didn't want to sound scared, but we were in the middle of nowhere, and in the pitch-black night I couldn't tell whether it was a swamp, a creek, or a small river under the bridge. It will be all right. People drive through here every day, Jackie chimed in. It would have been too embarrassing to turn around, so I drove slowly across the bridge and was relieved when we had made it to the other side. I continued for another mile until the forest began to give way to trailers, a few small homes, and finally an entire community hidden away in the woods. We pulled up a hill until we reached a trailer that was glowing in the darkness, lit by a fire burning in a barrel out front. Six or seven small children were playing outside. They dashed into the trailer when they saw our car pull up. As we got out of the car, a tall man emerged from the trailer. He walked up to us and hugged Minnie and Jackie before shaking my hand. They've been waiting for you, he told me. I know you probably got a lot of work to do, but we appreciate you coming to meet with us. I'm Giles, Walter's nephew. Giles led me to the trailer and opened the door for me to step inside. The small home was packed with more than thirty people, whose chattering fell silent when I walked in. I was startled by the size of the group, which stared at me appraisingly, and then one by one started to smile at me. Then, to my amazement, the room broke into loud applause. I was stunned by the gesture. No one had ever applauded me just for showing up. There were older women, younger women, men Walter's age, and several men much older. Their faces were creased with a by now familiar look of anxiety. When the applause had died down, I began to speak. Thank you, that's very kind, I started. I'm so glad to meet you all. Mr. McMillan told me he had a large family, but I didn't expect so many of you to be here. I saw him today, and he wants me to pass along his thanks and his gratitude to all of you for sticking by him. I hope you know how much your support means. He has to wake up on death row every morning, and that's not easy. But he knows he's not alone, and he talks about you all the time. Sit down, Mr. Stevenson, someone shouted. I took a seat on an empty couch that seemed to have been reserved for me, and Minnie sat down beside me. Everyone else stood facing me. We don't have any money. We gave it all to the first lawyer, called out one of the men. I understand that, and I won't take a penny. I work for a non-profit law office, and we provide legal assistance at no cost to the people we represent, I replied. Well, how do you pay the bills? asked one young woman. People laughed at the question. We get donations from foundations and people who support our work. Well, 
You get Johnny D home, and I'll make all kinds of donations," said another woman slyly. People laughed, and I smiled. An older woman spoke up. It was Armilla Hand. We don't have much, Mister Stevenson, but you have someone we love in your care. Anything we have, you have. These people have broken our hearts," she said. I began answering questions and listening to comments and testimonials about Walter, the town, race, the police, the trial, and the way the whole family was now being treated by people in the community. The hours passed, and I knew that I had probably exhausted whatever helpful information could be obtained from Walter's family, but folks still wanted to talk. There seemed to be therapeutic relief in voicing their concerns to me. Before long, I heard some hopefulness in their questions and comments. I explained the appeals process and talked about the kind of issues that were already apparent from the record. I began to feel encouraged that some of the information I provided maybe eased their anxiety. We started to joke some, and before I knew it, I felt embraced in a way that energized me. An older woman had given me a tall glass of sweet iced tea as I sat there listening and responding to questions. I drank the first glass thirstily because I was a little nervous. The tea was very good. The woman watched me drain the glass and smiled at me with a look of great satisfaction. She quickly filled the glass, and no matter how much or how little I drank, she minded my glass religiously the entire evening. After over three hours, many grabbed my hand and announced that they should let me go. It was close to midnight, and it would take me at least two hours to get to Montgomery. I said my farewells and exchanged hugs with practically everyone in the room before stepping out into the dark night. December is rarely bitter cold in South Alabama during the day, but at night the temperatures can drop—a dramatic reminder that it's winter, even in the South. Without an overcoat, I cranked up the heat for the long drive home after dropping Minnie and Jackie back at their house. The meeting with the family had been inspiring. There were clearly a lot of people who cared deeply about Walter and consequently cared about what I did and how I could help. But it was also clear that people had been traumatized by what had happened. Several of the people I met weren't actually related, but had been at the fish fry on the day of the crime. They were so deeply disturbed by Walter's conviction that they too had come over when they heard that I was coming. They needed a place to share their hurt and confusion. In 1903, W. E. B. Du Bois included in his seminal work *The Souls of Black Folk*, a brilliant but haunting short story. I thought about *Of the Coming of John* on the drive home. In Du Bois's story, a young black man in coastal Georgia is sent off hundreds of miles to a school that trains black teachers. The entire black community where he was born had raised the money for his tuition. The community invests in John so that he can one day return and teach African American children who are barred from attending the public school. Casual and fun-loving, John almost flunks out of his new school until he considers the trust he's been given. And the shame he would face if he returned without graduating, newly focused, sober, and intensely committed to succeed, he graduates with honors and returns to his community intent on changing things. John convinces the white judge who controls the town to allow him to open a school for black children. His education has empowered him, and he has strong opinions about racial freedom and equality that land him and the black community in trouble. The judge shuts down the school when he hears what John's been teaching. John walks home after the school's closing, frustrated and distraught. 
On the trip home, he sees his sister being groped by the judge's adult son, and he reacts violently, striking the man in the head with a piece of wood. John continues home to say goodbye to his mother. Du Bois ends the tragic story when the furious judge catches up to John with the lynch mob he has assembled. I read the story several times in college because I identified with John as the hope of an entire community. None of my aunts or uncles had graduated from college. Many hadn't graduated from high school. The people in my church always encouraged me and never asked me for anything back, but I felt a debt accumulating. Du Bois understood this dynamic deeply and brought it to life in a way that absolutely fascinated me. I just hoped that my parallel with John wouldn't extend to the getting lynched part. Driving home that night from meeting Walter's family, I thought of the story in a whole new way. I had never before considered how devastated John's community must have felt after his lynching. Things would become so much harder for the people who had given everything to help make John a teacher. For the surviving black community, there would be more obstacles to opportunity and progress, and much heartache. John's education had led not to liberation and progress, but to violence and tragedy. There would be more distrust, more animosity, and more injustice. Walter's family and most poor black people in his community were similarly burdened by Walter's conviction. Even if they hadn't been at his house the day of the crime, most black people in Monroeville knew someone who had been with Walter that day. The pain in that trailer was tangible. I could feel it. The community seemed desperate for some hope of justice. The realization left me anxious but determined. I'd gotten used to taking calls from lots of people concerning Walter's case. Most were poor and black, and they offered encouragement and support, and my visit with the family generated even more of those calls. And occasionally, a white person for whom Walter had worked would call to offer support, like Sam Crook. When Sam called, he insisted that I come and see him the next time I was back in town. I'm a rebel, he said toward the end of our call, part of the 117th Division of the Confederate Army. Sir? My people were heroes of the Confederacy. I've inherited their land, their title, and their pride. I love this county, but I know what happened to Walter McMillan ain't right. Well, I appreciate your call. You're going to need some backup, someone who knows some of these people you're going against, and I'm going to help you. I'd be very grateful for your help. I'll tell you something else. He lowered his voice. Do you think your phone is being tapped? No, sir. I, I think my phone is clear. Sam's voice rose in volume again. Well, I've decided I ain't going to let them string him up. I'll get some boys, and we'll go cut him down before we let them take him. I'm just not going to stand for them putting a good man down for something I know he didn't do. Sam Crook spoke in grand proclamations. I hesitated over how to respond. Well, thank you, was all I could manage. When I later asked Walter about Sam Crook, he just smiled. I've done a lot of work for him. He's been good to me. He's a very interesting guy. I saw Walter just about every other week for those first few months, and I learned some of his habits. Interesting was Walter's euphemism for odd people, and having worked for hundreds of people throughout the county over the years, he'd encountered no shortage of interesting people. The more unusual or bizarre the person was, the more interesting they would become in Walter's parlance very interesting, and real interesting, and finally, now he's real interesting, 
were the markers for strange and stranger characters. Walter seemed reluctant to say anything bad about anyone. He'd just chuckle if he thought someone was odd. Walter grew much more relaxed during our visits. As we became more comfortable with each other, he would sometimes veer into topics that had nothing to do with the case. We talked about the guards at the prison and his experiences dealing with other prisoners. He talked about people back home he thought would visit but hadn't. In these conversations, Walter showed remarkable empathy. He spent a lot of time imagining what other people were thinking and feeling that might mitigate their behavior. He guessed what frustrations guards must be experiencing to excuse the rude things they said to him. He gave voice to how hard it must be to visit someone on death row. We talked about the food he liked, jobs he'd worked when he was younger. We talked about race and power, the things we saw that were funny and the things we saw that were sad. It made him feel better to have a normal conversation with someone who wasn't on the row or a guard, and I always spent extra time with him to talk about things unrelated to the case, not just for him but for myself as well. I was trying so hard to get the project off the ground that my work had quickly become my life. I found something refreshing in the moments I spent with clients when we didn't relate to one another as attorney and client, but as friends. Walter's case was becoming the most complicated and time-consuming I'd ever worked on, and spending time with him was comforting even though it made me feel the pressure of his mistreatment in ways that became increasingly personal. Man, all these guys talk about how you're working on their case. You must not ever get any peace, he told me once. Well, everybody needs help, so we're trying. He gave me an odd look that I hadn't seen before. I think he wasn't sure whether he could give me advice. He hadn't done that yet. Finally, he seemed to say what he was thinking. Well, you know you can't help everybody. He looked at me earnestly. You'll kill yourself if you try to do that. He continued looking at me with concern. I smiled. I know. I mean, you got to help me. You shouldn't hold nothing back on my case, he said with a smile. I expect you to fight all comers to get me out of here. Take them all down if necessary. Stand up to giants? Slay wild beasts? Wrestle alligators? I joked. Yeah, and get somebody ready to take over the battle in case they chop your head off, because I'm still going to need help if they take you out. The more time I spent with Walter, the more I was persuaded that he was a kind, decent man with a generous nature. He freely acknowledged that he'd made poor decisions, particularly where women were concerned. By all accounts, from friends, family, and associates like Sam Crook, Walter generally tried to do the right thing. I never regarded our time together as wasted or unproductive. In all death penalty cases, spending time with clients is important. Developing the trust of clients is not only necessary to manage the complexities of the litigation and deal with the stress of a potential execution, it's also key to effective advocacy. A client's life often depends on his lawyer's ability to create a mitigation narrative that contextualizes his poor decisions or violent behavior. Uncovering things about someone's background that no one has previously discovered, things that might be hard to discuss but are critically important, requires trust. Getting someone to acknowledge he has been the victim of child sexual abuse, neglect, or abandonment won't happen without the kind of comfort that takes hours and multiple visits to develop. Talking about sports, TV, popular culture, or anything else the client wants to discuss is absolutely appropriate to building a relationship 
that makes effective work possible, but it also creates genuine connections with clients, and that's certainly what happened with Walter. Shortly after my first trip to see Walter's family, I received a call from a young man named Darnell Houston who told me that he could prove that Walter was innocent. His voice shook with nerves, but he was determined to speak to me. He didn't want to talk on the phone, so I drove down to meet with him one afternoon. He lived in a rural part of Monroe County on farmland that his family had worked since the time of slavery. Darnell was a sincere young man, and I could tell he'd been debating for a while whether to contact me. When I arrived at his home, he walked out to greet me. He was a young black man in his twenties who had joined the Jerry Curl craze. I had already noticed that the popular process of chemically treating black hair to make it looser and easier to style had come to Monroeville. I'd seen several black men, young and old, sporting the look with pride. The cheerful bounce of Darnell's hair contrasted with his worried demeanor. As soon as we sat down, he got right to business. Mr. Stevenson, I can prove that Walter McMillan is innocent. Really? Bill Hooks is lying. I didn't know he was even involved in that case until they told me he was part of how they put Walter McMillan on death row. First, I didn't believe Bill could have been part of this, but then I found out that he testified that he drove by the cleaners on the day that girl was killed, and that's a lie. How do you know? We were working together all that day. We both worked at the Napa Auto Parts store last November. I remember that Saturday when that girl was killed because ambulances and police started racing up the street. It went on for like 30 minutes. I'd been working in town for a couple of years and had never seen anything like it. You were working on the Saturday morning that Rhonda Morrison was killed? Yes, sir, with Bill Hooks from about 8 in the morning till we closed after lunch, after all the ambulances went by our shop. It was probably close to 11 when the siren started. Bill was working on a car in the shop with me. There ain't but one way out the store. He never left the entire morning. If he said he drove by the cleaners when that girl was killed, he's lying. One of the most frustrating things about reading Walter's trial record had been that the state's witnesses, Ralph Myers, Bill Hooks, and Joe Hightower, were so obviously not believable. Their testimony was laughably inconsistent and completely lacking in credibility. Meyer's account of his role in the crime, Walter kidnapping him to drive him to the crime scene and then dropping him off afterward, never made any sense. Hooks, a critical witness against McMillan, wasn't persuasive or reliable in the transcript. He just repeated the same story he'd given the police about driving by the cleaners at the time of the crime. His response to every line of questioning was to repeat over and over again that he saw Walter McMillan walk out of the store with a bag, get into his low-rider truck, and get driven away by a white man. He could not answer any of Chestnut's questions about what else he saw that day or what he was doing in the area. He just kept repeating that he saw McMillan at the cleaners. But the state needed Hook's testimony. My plan had been to immediately appeal Walter's conviction to the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals. The state had done so little to prove Walter's guilt that there weren't a lot of legal issues to appeal. But the evidence against him was so unpersuasive that I was hopeful the court might overturn the conviction simply because it was so unreliable. Once the case was on direct appeal, no new evidence would be considered. The time for filing a motion for a new trial in the trial court the last chance to introduce new facts before an appeal begins, had already expired. 
Chestnut and Boynton, Walter's lawyers for the initial trial, had filed a motion before withdrawing, and Judge Key had quickly denied it. Darnell said he told Walter's former lawyers what he told me, and that they had raised it in a motion for a new trial, but no one took it seriously. In capital cases, a motion for a new trial is routinely filed but rarely granted. But if the defendant alleges new evidence that could lead to a different outcome in the case, or that undermines the reliability of the trial, there is typically a hearing. After speaking with Darnell, I thought about refiling his assertions before the case went up on appeal, and maybe, just maybe, we could persuade local officials to retreat from the case against Walter. I made a motion to reconsider the denial of a new trial for Mr. McMillan. I immediately got an affidavit from Darnell stating that Hook's testimony was a lie. I took the risk of talking to a few local lawyers about whether the new prosecutor might acknowledge that the conviction was unreliable and support a new trial if there was compelling new evidence. Several people had suggested that Tom Chapman, the new Monroe County District Attorney and a former criminal defense attorney, would be fairer and more sympathetic to someone wrongly convicted than lifelong prosecutor Ted Pearson. After Pearson's long tenure as DA, Chapman's election represented something of a new era. He was in his 40s and had talked about modernizing law enforcement in the region. Some said that he was ambitious and might want to run for statewide office someday. I also discovered that he had represented Karen Kelly in a prior proceeding, which told me that he was already familiar with the case. I was hopeful. I was still sorting out how to proceed when Darnell called me at my office. Mr. Stevenson, you have to help. They arrested me this morning and took me to the jail. I just got out on bond. What? I asked them what I had done, and they told me I was being charged with perjury. He sounded terrified. Perjury? Based on what you told Mr. McMillan's lawyers a year ago? Have they come to interview you or talk to you since we got your statement? You were supposed to let me know if you heard from them. No, sir, I haven't heard from any of them. They just came and arrested me and told me I had been indicted for perjury. I hung up with Darnell, shocked and furious. It was unheard of to indict someone for perjury without any investigation or compelling evidence to establish that a false statement had been made. Police and prosecutors had found out that Darnell was talking to us, and they decided to punish him for it. A few days later, I called the new DA to set up a meeting. On my way to his office, I decided to give him a chance to explain what was going on. Instead of angrily complaining about the insanity of indicting someone for perjury, because he had contradicted a state's witness. I decided to wait until after my meeting before filing my stack of motions. This was my first meeting with anyone associated with Walter's prosecution, and I didn't want to begin with an angry accusation. I had allowed myself to believe that the people who had prosecuted Walter were just misguided, possibly incompetent. I knew some of them were bigoted and abusive, but I guess I held out the hope that they could be reoriented, Indicting Darnell was a worrisome signal that they were willing to threaten and intimidate people. The Monroe County Courthouse is situated in the heart of downtown Monroeville. I drove into town, parked, and entered the courthouse looking for the district attorney's office. On my only other trip to the courthouse a month earlier, I had gone to the clerk's office to pick up files, and the staff had asked me where I was from. When I said Montgomery, they launched into a lecture about Monroeville's prominence as a result of Harper Lee and her famous novel. 
I remember how the clerk had chatted me up. Have you read the book? It's a wonderful story. This is a famous place. They made the old courthouse a museum. And when they made the movie, Gregory Peck came here. You should go over there and stand where Mr. Peck stood. I mean, where Atticus Finch stood. She giggled with excitement, although I imagine she said the same thing to every out-of-town attorney who wandered in. She continued talking enthusiastically about the story until I promised to visit the museum as soon as I could. I refrained from explaining that I was too busy working on the case of an innocent black man the community was trying to execute after a racially biased prosecution. During this trip, I was in a different frame of mind. The last thing I was interested in was a fictional story about justice. I walked through the courthouse until I found the district attorney's office. I announced myself to the secretary, who eyed me suspiciously, before directing me into Chapman's office. He walked over to shake my hand. Chapman started off by saying, Mr. Stevenson, lots of people want to meet you. I told them you were coming down, but decided that just you and I should talk. It didn't surprise me that word had gotten around and that people were talking about Walter's new attorney. I had talked to enough people in the community to know that people would be discussing my efforts on Walter's behalf. My guess is that Judge Key had already characterized me as misguided and uncooperative simply because I didn't get off the case, as he had directed. Chapman had a medium build, curly hair, and glasses that suggested he didn't mind looking like someone who spent time reading and studying. I'd met prosecutors who dressed and presented like they would rather be out hunting ducks than running a law office, but Chapman was professional and courteous and approached me with a pleasant demeanor. I was intrigued that he would immediately give voice to the concerns of other people in law enforcement and was initially encouraged that he meant for us to have a candid conversation free of distractions and posturing. Well, I appreciate that, I said. I'm very concerned about this Macmillan case. I've read the record, and to be honest, I have serious doubts about his guilt and the reliability of this conviction. Well, this was a big case. There's no doubt about it. You do understand that I didn't have anything to do with the prosecution, don't you? Yes, I do. This was one of the most outrageous crimes in Monroe County history, and your client made a lot of people here extremely angry. People are still angry, Mr. Stevenson. There's not enough bad that can happen to Walter McMillan for some of them. This was a disappointing beginning. He seemed completely convinced of Walter's guilt, but I pressed on. Well, it was an outrageous, tragic crime, so anger is understandable, I replied. But it doesn't accomplish anything to convict the wrong person. Whether Mr. McMillan has done anything wrong is what the trial should resolve. If the trial is unfair, or if witnesses have given false testimony, then we can't really know whether he's guilty or not. Well, you may be the only person right now who thinks the trial was unfair. Like I said, I wasn't involved in the prosecution. I was becoming frustrated and Chapman probably saw me shift in my seat. I thought about the dozens of black people I'd met who had complained bitterly about Walter's prosecution, and I was starting to see Chapman as either naive or willfully indifferent, or worse. I tried unsuccessfully not to let my disappointment show. I'm not the only person with questions about this case, Mr. Chapman. There's a whole community of people, some of whom claim to have been with Walter McMillan miles away when the crime was committed, who believe in his innocence. There are people for whom he's worked who are absolutely convinced that he did not commit this crime. 
I've talked to some of those people, Chapman responded, and they can only have uninformed opinions. They don't have facts. Look, I can tell you right now that nobody cares who slept with Karen Kelly. There's evidence that implicates Walter McMillan for this murder, and my job is to defend this conviction. He was becoming more argumentative, and his voice was rising. The calm and curious look he had initially given me was shifting into anger and disgust. Well, you've indicted someone for perjury for contradicting the state's case. Do you intend to prosecute everyone who challenges the evidence in this case? My voice was now rising in exactly the way I wanted to avoid, but I was provoked by his attitude. Alabama case law is clear that a perjury charge can't be filed in the absence of clear and convincing evidence that a false statement has been made, I went on. A perjury indictment seems like a tactic designed to intimidate and discourage people from coming forward with evidence that contradicts the state's case. The charge against Mr. Houston seems really inappropriate, Mr. Chapman, and legally indefensible. I knew I was lecturing him and knew he didn't like it, but I wanted him to know that we were going to defend Walter in a serious way. Are you representing Darnell Houston now, too? Yes, I am. Well, I'm not sure you can do that, Mr. Stevenson. I think you might have a conflict there, he said, and then his voice shifted from argumentative to blandly matter-of-fact. But don't worry, I may drop the perjury charges against Houston. Now that the judge has denied your motion to reopen the case, I don't have any interest in pursuing charges against Darnell Houston, but I do want people to know that if they make false statements concerning this case, they are going to be held accountable. I was confused and a little stunned. What are you talking about? The motion to reconsider has been denied? Yes, the judge already denied your motion. You must not have gotten your copy of his order. He's down in Mobile now, so sometimes there are mail issues. I tried to conceal my surprise about the court's ruling on the motion without even permitting a hearing. I asked, So you have no interest in investigating what Darnell Houston is saying about the possibility that the state's main witness may be lying? Ralph Myers is the state's main witness. It was clear that Chapman had looked more deeply into the case than he had initially claimed. Without Hook's testimony, the conviction wouldn't be valid, I said, leveling my voice. Under the state's theory, Myers is an accomplice and state law requires confirmation of accomplice testimony, which can only come from Hooks. Mr. Houston says that Hooks is lying, which makes his testimony a critical issue that should be heard in court. I knew I was right. The law was as clear as it possibly could be on this question, but I also knew that I was talking to someone who didn't care what the law said. I knew that what I was saying wouldn't persuade Chapman, but I felt the need to say it anyway. Chapman stood up. I could tell he was annoyed by my lecturing and legal arguments, and I was pretty sure he thought I was being pushy. That sounds like an issue you'll need to raise on appeal, Mr. Stevenson. You can tell Mr. Houston that the charges against him are being dropped. I can do that for y'all, but that's about it. His tone was dismissive, and when he turned his back to me, I knew he'd ended the meeting and was now eager to get me out of his office. I left his office extremely frustrated. Chapman had not been unfriendly or hostile, yet his indifference to McMillan's innocence claim was hard for me to accept. Reading the record had shown me that there were people who were willing to ignore evidence, logic, and common sense to convict someone and reassure the community that the crime had been solved and the murderer punished. But talking face-to-face -face with someone about the case made the irrational thinking swirling around Walter's conviction much, much harder to accept. 
Chapman hadn't prosecuted the case, and I had hoped that he might not want to defend something so unreliable. But it was clear that he was locked into this narrative just like everyone else who had been involved. I'd seen the abuse of power in many cases before, but there was something especially upsetting about it here, where not only a single defendant was being victimized, but an entire community as well. I filed my stack of motions just to make sure that if they didn't dismiss the charges, they knew we would fight them. Walking down the hallway to my car, I saw yet another flyer about the next production of To Kill a Mockingbird, which just added to my outrage. Darnell had remained home after he posted bond. I stopped by his house to discuss my meeting with the DA. He was thrilled to hear that the charges against him would be dropped, but he was still shaken by the whole experience. I explained that what the state had done to him was illegal and that we could pursue a civil action against them, but he had no interest in that. I didn't actually think a civil suit was a good idea since it would just leave him vulnerable to more harassment, but I didn't want him to think I was unwilling to fight on his behalf. Mr. Stevenson, all I wanted to do is tell the truth. I can't go to jail, and I'll be honest, these folks have scared me. I understand, I said, but what they did is illegal, and I want you to know that you have done nothing wrong. They're the ones who have acted very, very inappropriately. They're trying to intimidate you. Well, it's working. What I told you is true, and I stand by it, but I can't have these folks coming after me. Well, the judge has denied our motion, so you don't have to testify or come to court at this point. Let me know if you have any more problems with them or if they come to speak with you about this. You can tell people that I'm your lawyer and refer them to me, okay? That's okay, but does that mean you are my lawyer? Yes, I'll represent you if anyone creates any issues behind what you've disclosed. He looked a little relieved but was still pretty rattled when I left. I got in my car with the sinking realization that if everyone who tried to help us on this case was going to be threatened, it would be very difficult to prove Walter's innocence. If his case wasn't overturned on direct appeal, we'd have a chance to file a post-conviction petition later. And we would need new evidence, new witnesses, and new facts to prove Walter's innocence. Based on the experience with Darnell, this would be extremely challenging. I decided not to worry about it now and turned my attention to the appeal. With the reconsideration denied, the appeal brief was due in 28 days. I wasn't even sure how much time had elapsed since the judge's ruling, as I had never received the order. I left for home frustrated and worried. On my drives between Monroeville and Montgomery, I had gotten used to looking at the rural farmland, the cotton fields, and the hilly countryside. I would think about what life here must have been like decades ago. This time I didn't have to imagine it. Darnell's despair his sadness in recognizing that they could do whatever they wanted to him with impunity was utterly disheartening. From what I could see, there simply was no commitment to the rule of law, no accountability, and little shame. Arresting someone for coming forward with credible evidence that challenged the reliability of a capital murder conviction? The more I thought about it, the more disoriented and provoked I became. It was also sobering. If they arrested people who said things that were inconvenient, how would they react if I challenged them even harder? As I left town, I watched the sunset and darkness descend across the county landscape as it had for centuries. People would be heading home now, some to very comfortable houses where they could relax easily, secure, and proud of their community. Others, 
people like Darnell and Walter's family would be returning to less comfortable homes. They would not rest as easily, nor would there be much thought of community pride. For them, the darkness brought a familiar unease, an uncertainty weighted with a wary, lingering fear as old as the settlement of the county itself. Discomfort too long-standing and constant to merit discussion, but too burdensome to ever forget. I drove away as quickly as I could. Chapter 6 Surely Doomed He's just a little boy. It was late, and I had picked up the phone after hours because no one else was in the building. It was becoming a bad habit. The older woman on the other end of the line was pleading with me after offering a heartfelt description of her grandson, who had just been jailed for murder. He's already been in the jail for two nights. I can't get to him. I'm in Virginia, and my health is not good. Please tell me you'll do something. I hesitated before answering her. Only a handful of countries permitted the death penalty for children, and the United States was one of them. Many of my Alabama clients were on death row for crimes they were accused of committing when they were 16- or 17-year-old children. Many states had changed their laws to make it easier to prosecute children as adults, and my clients were getting younger and younger. Alabama had more juveniles sentenced to death per capita than any other state or any other country in the world. I was determined to manage the growing demand for our services by taking on new cases only if the client was facing execution or formally condemned to death row. This woman had told me that her grandson was only 14. While the Supreme Court had upheld the death penalty for juveniles in a 1989 ruling, a year earlier the court had barred the death penalty for children under the age of 15. Whatever perils this child faced, he was not going to be sent to death row. This lady's grandson might be facing life imprisonment without parole, but given the overwhelming number of death penalty cases on our docket, I couldn't rationalize taking on his case. As I considered how to answer this woman's plea, she started speaking quickly at a whisper. Lord, please help us. Lead this man and protect us from any choice that is not yours. Help me find the words. Lord, tell me what to say, Lord. I didn't want to interrupt her prayer, so I waited until she finished. Ma'am, I can't take the case, but I will drive down to the jail and see your grandson tomorrow. I'll see what I can do. We likely won't be able to represent him, but let me find out what's going on and perhaps we can help you find a lawyer who can assist you. Mr. Stevenson, I'm so grateful. I was tired and already feeling overwhelmed with the cases I had and cases with juveniles took an especially severe emotional toll on everyone who touched them. But I needed to go to a courthouse near the county where this boy was being held, so it wouldn't be that big a deal to stop by and see the child. The next morning I drove for over an hour to the county. When I got to the courthouse, I checked the clerk's file on the case and found a lengthy incident report. Because I was an attorney investigating the case on behalf of the family, the clerk let me read the file, although she wouldn't make a copy or let me take it out of the office because it involved a minor. The clerk's office was small, but it wasn't especially busy, so I sat down on an uncomfortable metal chair in a cramped corner of the room to read the statement, which mostly confirmed everything the grandmother had told me. Charlie was 14 years old. 
He weighed less than a hundred pounds and was just five feet tall. He didn't have any juvenile criminal history, no prior arrests, no misconduct in school, no delinquencies or prior court appearances. He was a good student who had earned several certificates for perfect attendance at his school. His mother described him as a great kid who always did what she asked. But Charlie had, by his own account, shot and killed a man named George. George was Charlie's mother's boyfriend. She referred to their relationship as a mistake. George would often come home drunk and begin acting violently. There were three occasions in the year and a half leading up to the night of the shooting when George beat Charlie's mother so mercilessly that she required medical treatment. She never left George or made him leave, even though she told several people that she knew she should. On the night of the shooting, George had come home very drunk. Charlie and his mother were playing cards when he arrived. He entered the house shouting, "Hey, where are you?" Charlie's mother followed his voice to the kitchen. Where she let him know that she and Charlie were home playing cards, the two adults had argued earlier in the evening because she had begged him not to go out, fearing that he would come home drunk. Now she looked at him angrily when she saw him standing there, reeking of alcohol. He looked back at her, mirroring her contempt and disgust, and in a flash he punched her hard in the face. She didn't expect him to hit her so quickly or violently. He hadn't done it like that before. She collapsed to the floor with the crush of his blow. Charlie was standing behind his mother and saw her head slam against the metal kitchen counter as she fell. George saw Charlie standing there and glared at him coldly before brushing past him toward the bedroom, where Charlie heard him fall noisily onto the bed. Charlie's mother was lying on the floor, unconscious and bleeding badly. He knelt by his mother's side and tried to stop the bleeding. There was some blood on her face, but it poured from an ugly cut on the back of her head. Charlie tried feverishly to revive her. He started crying, futilely asking his mother what to do. He got up and put paper towels behind her head, but couldn't stop the bleeding. He frantically searched for the cloth kitchen towel because he thought that would work better, and found it wrapped around a pot on the stove. His mother had cooked black-eyed peas for dinner. He loved black-eyed peas. They'd eaten together before they'd started playing pinochle, his favorite card game. Charlie replaced the paper towels with the cloth towel and panicked all over again when he saw how much blood there was. He was quietly begging his mother to wake up when it appeared to him that she wasn't breathing. He thought he should call an ambulance, but the phone was in the bedroom with George. George had never hit Charlie, but he terrified him just the same. As a younger child, whenever Charlie got very scared or anxious. He would sometimes start trembling and shaking. The shaking would almost always be followed by a nosebleed. Sitting on the kitchen floor with his mother's blood all around him, Charlie could feel himself starting to tremble, and within seconds the blood slowly began to trickle out of his nose. His mother would always run to get something to help him with the nosebleeds, but now she just lay on the floor. He wiped the blood from his nose and focused on the fact that he had to do something. His trembling stopped. His mother hadn't moved in nearly fifteen minutes. The house was quiet. The only sound he heard was George breathing heavily in the other room. Soon he could hear him snoring. Charlie had been slowly stroking his mother's hair, desperately hoping that she would open her eyes. The blood from her head had saturated the towel and was spreading onto Charlie's pants, 
Charlie thought his mother might be dying or maybe even already dead. He had to call an ambulance. He stood up, flooded with anxiety, and cautiously made his way to the bedroom. Charlie saw George on the bed asleep and felt a surge of hatred for this man. He had never liked him, never understood why his mother had let him live with them. George didn't like Charlie either. He was rarely friendly to the boy. Even when he wasn't drunk, George seemed angry all the time. His mother had told Charlie that George could be sweet, but Charlie had never seen any of that. Charlie knew that George's first wife and child had been killed in a car accident, and that was why Charlie's mom said he drank so much. In the 18 months that George lived with them, it seemed to Charlie that there had been nothing but violence, loud arguments, pushing and shoving, threats, and turmoil. His mother had stopped smiling the way she used to. She'd become nervous and jumpy, and now, he thought, she's on the kitchen floor, dead. Charlie walked to the dresser against the back wall of the bedroom to reach the phone. He had called 911 a year earlier after George had hit his mom, but she had directed him to do so and told him what to say. When he reached the phone, he wasn't sure why he didn't just pick up the receiver. He could never really explain why he opened the dresser drawer instead, put his hand under the folded white T-shirts his mom had laundered, and felt for the handgun he knew George kept hidden there. He'd found it there when George had said Charlie could wear an Auburn University T-shirt someone had given him. It was way too small for George and way too big for Charlie, but he'd been grateful to have it. It had been one of George's few kind gestures. This time he didn't pull his hand back in fear as he had before. He picked up the gun. He'd never fired a gun before, but he knew he could do it. George was now snoring rhythmically. Charlie walked over to the bed, his arms stretched out, pointing the gun at George's head. As Charlie hovered over him, the snoring stopped. The room grew very, very quiet, and that's when Charlie pulled the trigger. The sound of the bullet firing was much louder than Charlie had expected. The gun jerked and pushed Charlie a step back. He almost lost his balance and fell. He looked at George and squeezed his eyes closed. It was horrible. He could feel himself starting to tremble again. And that's when he heard his mother moaning in the kitchen. He couldn't believe she was alive. He ran back to the phone and called 911, then sat next to his mother until the police arrived. After learning all of this, I was positive they would not prosecute Charlie as an adult. I continued to read the file and the notes from the initial court appearance. The prosecutor did not dispute the account that Charlie and his mother had given. It was only when I continued reading that I discovered that George was a local police officer. The prosecutor made a long argument about what a great man George had been and how upsetting his death had been for everyone in the community. George was a law enforcement officer who served with honor, the prosecutor argued. It is a great loss for the county and a tragedy that a good person could be so heartlessly killed by this young man. The prosecutor insisted that Charlie be tried as an adult, and he announced that he intended to seek the maximum punishment permitted by law. The judge agreed that this was capital murder and that the boy should be tried as an adult. Charlie was immediately taken to the county jail for adults. The small county jail was across the street from the courthouse. Like many southern communities, the courthouse anchored the square that marked the town center. I stepped outside and walked across the street to the jail to see this young man. 
The jailers clearly didn't receive a lot of out-of-town lawyers for legal visits. The deputy on duty looked at me suspiciously before taking me into the jail, where I sat in the small attorney meeting room waiting for Charlie. From the time I finished reading the file, I couldn't stop thinking about how tragic this case was, and my somber thoughts weren't interrupted until a small child was pushed into the visiting room. This boy seemed way too short, way too thin, and way too scared to be fourteen. I looked at the jailer who seemed to share my surprise at how small and terrified the child appeared. I asked them to remove the handcuffs. Sometimes in jails like this, the guards resist uncuffing clients, arguing that it's not safe or permitted to take the handcuffs off a suspect during a legal visit. They worry that if a person gets upset or becomes violent, being uncuffed will make him or her harder to subdue. This guard didn't hesitate to take the handcuffs off this child before leaving the room. We were sitting at a wooden table that was probably four by six feet. Charlie was on one side of the table, and I was on the other. It had been three days since his arrest. Charlie, my name is Brian. Your grandmother called me and asked me if I would come and see you. I'm a lawyer, and I help people who get in trouble or who are accused of crimes, and I'd like to help you. The boy wouldn't make eye contact with me. He was tiny, but he had big, beautiful eyes. He had a close haircut that was common for little boys because it required no maintenance. It made him look even younger than he was. I thought I saw tattoos or symbols on his neck, but when I looked more closely, I realized they were bruises. Charlie, are you okay? He was staring intensely to my left, looking at the wall as if he saw something there. His distant look was so alarming that I actually turned to see if there was something of interest behind me, but it was just a blank wall. The disconnected look, the sadness in his face, and his complete lack of engagement—qualities he shared with a lot of other teenagers I'd worked with—were the only things that made me believe he was fourteen. I sat and waited for a very long time in the hope that he would give me some kind of response, but the room remained silent. He stared at the wall and then looked down at his own wrists. He wrapped his right hand around his left wrist where the handcuffs had been and rubbed the spot where the metal had pinched him. Charlie, I want to make sure you're doing okay, so I just need you to answer a few questions for me, okay? I knew he could hear me. Whenever I spoke, he would lift his head and return his gaze to the spot on the wall. Charlie, if I were you, I'd be pretty scared and really worried right now. But I'd also want someone to help me. I'd like to help, okay? I waited for a response, but none was forthcoming. Charlie, can you speak? Are you okay? He stared at the wall when I spoke, and then back at his wrists when I was finished. But he didn't say a word. We don't have to talk about George. We don't have to talk about what happened. We can talk about whatever you want. Is there something you want to talk about? I was waiting for longer and longer stretches after each question, desperately hoping that he would say something, but he didn't. Do you want to talk about your mom? She's going to be fine. I've checked, and even though she can't visit you, she's going to be fine. She's worried about you. I thought talking about his mother would spark something in Charlie's eyes. When it didn't, I became even more concerned about the child. I noticed that there was a second chair on Charlie's side of the table. And I realized that lawyers were apparently supposed to sit on that side, and the clients on the side I chose, where there was only one chair. I'd sat in the wrong place.
I lowered my voice and spoke more softly. Charlie, you've got to talk to me. I can't help you if you don't. Would you just say your name? Say something, please. He continued to stare at the wall. I waited and then stood up and walked around the table. He didn't look at me as I moved, but returned his gaze to his wrist. I sat in the chair next to him, leaned close, and said quietly, Charlie, I'm really sorry if you're upset, but please talk to me. I can't help you if you don't talk to me. He leaned back in his chair for the first time, nearly placing his head on the wall behind us. I pulled my chair closer to him and leaned back in mine. We sat silently for a long time, and then I started saying silly things because I didn't know what else to do. Well, you won't tell me what you're thinking, so I guess I'm going to just have to tell you what I'm thinking. I bet you think you know what I'm thinking, I said playfully. But in fact, you really couldn't possibly imagine. You probably think I'm thinking about the law or the judge or the police or why won't this young man speak with me? But what I'm actually thinking about is food. Yes, that's right, Charlie, I continued teasingly. I'm thinking about fried chicken and collard greens cooked with turkey meat and sweet potato biscuits. You ever had a sweet potato biscuit? Nothing. You've probably never had a sweet potato biscuit, and that's a shame. Still nothing. I kept going. I'm thinking about getting a new car because my car is so old. I waited. Nothing. Charlie, you're supposed to say, how old is it, Brian? And then I say, my car is so old. He never smiled or responded. He just continued looking at the spot on the wall, his face frozen in sadness. What kind of car do you think I should get? I went through a range of ridiculous musings that yielded nothing from Charlie. He continued to lean back, and his body seemed a little less tense. I noticed that our shoulders were now touching. After a while, I tried again. Come on, Charlie. What's going on? You've got to talk to me, son. I started leaning on him somewhat playfully until he sat forward a bit, and then I finally felt him lean back into me. I took a chance and put my arm around him, and he immediately began to shake. His trembling intensified before he finally leaned completely into me and started crying. I put my head to his and said, It's okay. It's all right. He was sobbing when he finally spoke. It didn't take me long to realize that he wasn't talking about what happened with George or with his mom, but about what happened at the jail. There were three men who hurt me on the first night. They touched me and made me do things. Tears were streaming down his face. His voice was high-pitched and strained with anguish. They came back the next night and hurt me a lot, he said, becoming more hysterical with each word. Then he looked in my face for the first time. There were so many last night, I don't know how many there were, but they hurt me. He was crying too hard to finish his sentence. He gripped my jacket with a force I wouldn't have imagined he was capable of exerting. I held him, and I told him as gently as I could, It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I'd never held anyone who gripped me as tightly as that child or cried as hard or as long. It seemed like his tears would never end. He would tire and then start again. I just decided to hold him until he stopped. It was almost an hour before he calmed down and the crying stopped. I promised him that I would try to get him out of there right away. He begged me not to leave, but I assured him that I would be back that day. We never talked about the crime.
When I left the jail, I was more angry than sad. I kept asking myself, who is responsible for this? How could we ever allow this? I went directly to the sheriff's office inside the jail and explained to the overweight, middle-aged sheriff what the child had told me, and I insisted that they immediately place him in a protected single cell. The sheriff listened with a distracted look on his face, but when I said I was going to see the judge, he agreed to move the child into a protected area immediately. I then went back across the street to the courthouse and found the judge, who called the prosecutor. When the prosecutor arrived in the judge's chambers, I told them that the child had been sexually abused and raped. He agreed to move him to a nearby juvenile facility within the next several hours. I decided to take on the case. We ultimately got Charlie's case transferred to juvenile court, where the shooting was adjudicated as a juvenile offense. That meant Charlie wouldn't be sent to an adult prison, and he would likely be released before he turned 18, in just a few years. I visited Charlie regularly, and in time he recovered. He was a smart, sensitive child who was tormented by what he'd done and what he'd been through. At a talk I gave at a church months later, I spoke about Charlie and the plight of incarcerated children. Afterward, an older married couple approached me and insisted that they had to help Charlie. I tried to dissuade these kind people from thinking that they could do anything, but I gave them my card and told them that they could call me. I didn't expect to hear from them, but within days they called and they were persistent. We eventually agreed that they would write a letter to Charlie and send it to me to pass on to him. When I received the letter weeks later, I read it. It was remarkable. Mr. and Mrs. Jennings were a white couple in their mid-seventies from a small community northeast of Birmingham. They were kind and generous people who were active in their local United Methodist Church. They never missed a Sunday service and were especially drawn to children in crisis. They spoke softly and always seemed to be smiling, but never appeared to be anything less than completely genuine and compassionate. They were affectionate with each other in a way that was endearing, frequently holding hands and leaning into each other. They dressed like farmers and owned ten acres of land where they grew vegetables and lived simply. Their one and only grandchild, whom they had helped raise, had committed suicide when he was a teenager, and they had never stopped grieving for him. Their grandson struggled with mental health problems during his short life, but he was a smart kid and they had been putting money away to send him to college. They explained in their letter that they wanted to use the money they had saved for their grandson to help Charlie. Eventually, Charlie and this couple began corresponding with one another, building up to the day when the Jennings met Charlie at the juvenile detention facility. They later told me that they loved him instantly. Charlie's grandmother had died a few months after she first called me, and his mother was still struggling after the tragedy of the shooting and Charlie's incarceration. Charlie had been apprehensive about meeting the Jennings because he thought they wouldn't like him, but he told me after they left how much they seemed to care about him and how comforting that was. The Jennings became his family. At one point early on, I tried to caution them against expecting too much from Charlie after his release. You know, he's been through a lot. I'm not sure he can just carry on as if nothing ever happened. I want you to understand he may not be able to do everything you'd like him to do. They never accepted my warnings. Mrs. Jennings was rarely disagreeable or argumentative, but I had learned that she would grunt when someone said something she didn't completely accept. She told me, We've all been through a lot, Brian, all of us. I know that some have been through more than others, but if we don't expect more from each other, 
hope better for one another, and recover from the hurt we experience, we are surely doomed. The Jennings helped Charlie get his general equivalency degree in detention and insisted on financing his college education. They were there, along with his mother, to take him home when he was released. Chapter 7 Justice Denied Walter's appeal was denied. The 70-page opinion from the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals affirming his conviction and death sentence was devastating. I'd filed a lengthy brief that documented the insufficiency of the evidence and raised every legal deficiency in the trial that I could identify. I argued that there was no credible corroboration of Meyer's testimony and that under Alabama law, the state couldn't rely exclusively on the testimony of an accomplice. I argued that there was prosecutorial misconduct, racially discriminatory jury selection, and an improper change of venue. I even challenged Judge Robert E. Lee Key's override of the jury's life sentence, though I knew the reduction of an innocent man's death sentence to life imprisonment without parole would still have been an egregious miscarriage of justice. The court rejected all of my arguments. I didn't think it would turn out this way. At the oral argument months earlier, I'd been hopeful as I walked into the imposing Alabama Judicial Building and stood in the grand appellate courtroom that was formerly a Scottish Rite Freemasonry temple. Constructed in the 1920s, the building was renovated into a cavernous courthouse in the 1940s, complete with marble floors and an impressive dome ceiling. It stood at the end of Dexter Avenue in Montgomery, across the street from the historic Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had pastored during the Montgomery bus boycott. A block away was the state capitol, adorned with three banners, the American flag, the white and red state flag of Alabama, and the battle flag of the Confederacy. The Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals courtroom was on the second floor. The chief judge of the court was former Governor John Patterson. He had made national news in the 1960s as a fierce opponent of civil rights and racial integration. In 1958, with the backing of the Ku Klux Klan, he defeated George Wallace for governor. His positions were even more pro-segregation than Wallace's, who, having learned his lesson, would become the most famous segregationist in America, declaring in 1963, Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever just a block away from this courthouse. When he was attorney general before becoming governor, Patterson banned the NAACP from operating in Alabama and blocked civil rights boycotts and protests in Tuskegee and Montgomery. As governor, he withheld law enforcement protection for the Freedom Riders, the black and white college students and activists who traveled south in the early 1960s to desegregate public facilities in recognition of new federal laws. When the Freedom Riders bus traveled through Alabama, they were abandoned by the police. Alone and unprotected, they were beaten violently and their bus was bombed. Still, I forced myself to be hopeful. That was all long ago. During my argument, the court's five judges looked at me with curiosity, but asked few questions. I chose to interpret their silence as agreement. I hoped they saw so little support for the conviction that they didn't think there was much to discuss. Judge Patterson's only remark during the oral argument came at the end, when he slowly but firmly asked a single question that echoed through the mostly empty courtroom. Where are you from? 
I was thrown by the question and hesitated before answering. I live in Montgomery, sir. I had foolishly discouraged Macmillan's family from attending the oral argument because I knew that the issues were fairly arcane and that there would be very little discussion of the facts. Supporters would have to take off from work and make the long drive to Montgomery for an early morning argument. Since each side had only thirty minutes to present, I hadn't thought it worth the effort. When I sat down after the argument, I regretted that decision. I would have appreciated some sympathetic faces in the courtroom to signal to the court that this case was different, but there were none. An assistant attorney general then presented the state's arguments. Capital cases on appeal were managed by the attorney general, not the local district attorney. The state's lawyer argued that this was a routine capital murder case and that the death penalty had been appropriately imposed. Following the oral argument, I still had hope that the court would overturn the conviction and sentence because it was so clearly unsupported by reliable facts. State law required credible corroboration of accomplice testimony in a murder case, and there simply wasn't any in Walter's case. I believed that the court would have a hard time affirming a conviction with so little evidence. I was wrong. I drove to the prison to deliver the news. Walter didn't say anything as I explained the situation, but he had a strange, despairing look on his face. I had tried to prepare him for the possibility that it could take years to get his conviction overturned, but he had gotten his hopes up. They aren't ever going to admit they made a mistake, he said glumly. They know I didn't do this. They just can't admit to being wrong, to looking bad. We're just getting started, Walter, I replied. There's a lot more to do, and we're going to make them confront this. I was telling the truth. We did have to press on. Our plan was to ask the Court of Criminal Appeals to reconsider its decision. And if that turned out to be a dead end, we would seek review in the Alabama Supreme Court. And we had uncovered even more evidence of Walter's innocence. After filing the appeal brief, I'd continued investigating the case intensively. If we hadn't come up with so much new evidence to prove Walter's innocence, I think the court's ruling would have been even more overwhelming. I told Walter before I left the prison, they don't know what we now know about your innocence. As soon as we present the new evidence to them, they'll think differently. My hopefulness was genuine, in spite of everything that had happened already, but I was underestimating the resistance we would face. I'd finally been able to hire some additional lawyers for the organization, which gave me more time to investigate Walter's case. One of my new hires was Michael O'Connor, a recent Yale Law School graduate with a passion for helping people in trouble that had been kindled by his own struggles earlier in life. The son of Irish immigrants, Michael had grown up outside of Philadelphia in a tough working-class neighborhood. When his high school friends started experimenting with hard drugs, so did Mike and he soon developed a heroin addiction. His life descended into a nightmare of drug dependency and chaos, complete with the growing risk of death by overdose. For several years, he floated from one crisis to another until the overdose death of a close friend motivated him to crawl his way back to sobriety. Throughout all of this heartache, his family had never abandoned him. They helped him stabilize his life and find his way back to college, at Penn State, he revealed himself to be a brilliant student, graduating summa cum laude. His academic credentials got him into Yale Law School, but his heart was still connected to all the brokenness his years on the street had shown him. When I interviewed him for the job, he was apologetic about the darker episodes in his past, but I thought he was perfect for the kind of staff we were trying to build. 
He signed up, moved to Montgomery, and without hesitation jumped into the McMillan case with me. We spent days tracking leads, interviewing dozens of people, following wild rumors, investigating different theories. I was increasingly persuaded that we would have to figure out who really had killed Rhonda Morrison to win Walter's release. Aside from my appreciation for Michael's invaluable help with the work itself, I was grateful finally to have someone around to share the insanity of the case with, just as I was discovering that it was even crazier than I thought. After a few months of investigation, we'd uncovered strong evidence to support Walter's innocence. We discovered that Bill Hooks had been paid by Sheriff Tate for his testimony against Walter. We found checks in the county's financial records showing close to $5,000 in payments to Hooks in reward money and expenses. Sheriff Tate had also paid Hooks money to travel back and forth out of the county around the time of the trial. This information should have been disclosed to Walter's counsel prior to trial so that they could have used it to cast doubt on the credibility of Hooks' testimony. We also found out that Hooks had been released from jail immediately after giving the police his statement that he'd seen Walter's lowrider truck at the cleaners on the day of the murder. We found court records revealing that the DA and the sheriff, who are county officials, had somehow gotten city charges and fines against Hooks dismissed, even though they had no authority in city courts. Under U.S. Supreme Court precedent, that Hooks had charges against him dismissed in exchange for cooperation with authorities was information that the state was obligated to reveal to the defense. But of course they hadn't. We found the white man who was running the store on the day that Ralph Myers came in for the purpose of giving a note to Walter. Walter had tried to persuade his original lawyers to speak to this man, but they had failed to do so. After Walter described the location of the store, we were able to track him down. The store owner recounted his memory of that day. Myers had sought out Walter, but had to ask the store owner which of the several black men in the store was Walter McMillan. Months after the crime, the store owner was adamant that Myers had never seen Walter McMillan before. In a church basement, Walter's sister found flyers advertising the fish fry held at Walter's house. They confirmed that the event had taken place on the same day as the Morrison murder. A white store owner who had no relationship to Walter or his family had kept a copy of that flyer for some reason, and he confirmed that he had received it before the Morrison murder. We even tracked down Clay Cast, the white mechanic who had modified Walter's truck and converted it to a lowrider. He confirmed that the work had been done over six months after Rhonda Morrison was murdered. This proved that McMillan's truck had no modifications or special features and therefore could not have been the truck described by Myers and Hooks at the trial. I was feeling very good about the progress we were making when I got a call that would become the most significant break in the case. The voice said, Mr. Stevenson, this is Ralph Myers. Our secretary had told me there was a Mr. Miles on the phone, so I was a little shocked to hear Ralph Myers on the other end of the line. Before I could compose myself, he spoke again. I think you need to come and see me. I have something I need to tell you, he said dramatically. Myers was imprisoned at the St. Clair Correctional Facility in Springville, Alabama, and Michael and I made plans to meet him there in three days. Michael and I had started running a few miles at night after work to help us wind down from the increasingly long work days. Montgomery has a beautiful park that houses the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, which brings nationally acclaimed playwrights and actors to Alabama to perform Shakespeare 
and modern theatrical productions. The theater is set among hundreds of acres of beautifully maintained parkland with lakes and ponds. There are several trails for running. That evening we spent most of our run speculating about what Myers would tell us. Why would Myers call us now? Michael asked. Can you imagine just going into a courtroom and straight up making up a story that puts an innocent man on death row? I'm not sure we can trust anything he says. Well, you may be right, but he had a lot of help in putting together that testimony. Remember, they also put Myers on death row to coerce some of those statements. Who knows? He may be in touch with the state now, and this is some kind of setup where they are trying to mislead us. I hadn't seriously considered that possibility until our run that night. I thought again about how sleazy Myers had been during the trial. We have to be careful to not reveal information to Myers, just get information he has. But we have to talk to him because if he recants his trial testimony, the state has nothing on Walter. We agreed that depending on what he had to say, Myers could change everything for us. We had made a lot of progress in disproving the testimony of Bill Hooks, with the appearance of Darnell Houston, the new evidence about the condition of Walter's truck, and the discovery of the assistance given Hooks by law enforcement, his testimony was now riddled with credibility issues. But getting a recantation from Myers would be a much bigger deal. Myers' bizarre accusations and testimony were the basis of the state's entire case. Having read Myers' testimony and reviewed the records that were available about him, I knew that he had a tragic background and a complex personality. Walter and his family had described Myers as pure evil for the lies he had told during the trial. The experience of being so coldly lied about at trial by someone you don't even know was one of the most disquieting parts of the trial for Walter. When Walter called me at the office the next day, I told him that we'd heard from Myers and that we were going to see what he had to say. Walter warned me. He's a snake. Be careful. Michael and I drove two hours to the state prison in Springville, in St. Clair County. The prison is in a rural area northeast of Birmingham, where the Alabama terrain starts to turn rocky and mountainous. The maximum security prison was more recently built than Holman or Donaldson, the other maximum security prisons in Alabama, but no one would suggest that St. Clair was modern. Michael and I cleared security at the prison entrance. The guard who patted us down said he'd been working at the prison for three months, and this was the first time he'd had a legal visit during his shift. We were directed down a long corridor that led to a flight of stairs that took us deeper inside the prison. We were admitted through several secure metal doors into the large room that served as the visitation area. It was typical. There were vending machines against the back walls and small rectangular tables where inmates could meet with family members. The familiarity of the setting did little to calm us, Michael and I put our notepads and pens on one of the tables and then paced around the room, waiting for Myers. When Myers walked into the visitation area, I was surprised at how old he seemed. His hair was almost completely gray, which made him seem frail and vulnerable. He was also shorter, with a much smaller body frame than I was expecting. His testimony had caused so much anguish for Walter and his family that I had created a larger-than-life image of him. He walked toward us but stopped short when he saw Michael and nervously blurted out, Who is he? You didn't tell me you were bringing anybody with you. Myers had a thick southern accent. Up close, his scars made him appear more sympathetic than menacing or villainous. 
This is Michael O'Connor. He's a lawyer in my office, working with me on this case. Michael is just helping me investigate this case. Well, people told me I could trust you. I don't know anything about him. I promise he's fine. I glanced over at Michael, who was trying his best to look trustworthy before turning back to Myers. Please have a seat. He looked at Michael skeptically and then slowly sat down. My plan was to try to ease him into the conversation by letting him know that we just wanted the truth. But before I could say anything, Myers blurted out a full recantation of his trial testimony. I lied. Everything I said at McMillan's trial was a lie. I've lost a lot of sleep and have been in a lot of pain over this. I can't be quiet any longer. The testimony you gave at trial against Walter McMillan was a lie? I asked cautiously. My heart was pounding, but I tried to stay as steady as I could. I was afraid that if I seemed too eager or too surprised, too anything, he might retreat. It was all a lie. What I'm going to tell you is going to blow your mind, Mr. Stevenson. He held his stare on me dramatically before turning to Michael. You too, Jimmy Connors. It didn't take many conversations with Ralph before it became clear that he had difficulty remembering names. Mr. Myers, you know I'm going to want you to not only tell me the truth, but also tell the court the truth. Are you willing to do that? I was nervous to push so quickly, but I needed to be clear. I didn't want a private performance. That's why I called you. He sounded surprised that there could be any question about his intentions. I've been in group therapy class here. You're supposed to be real honest. We've been talking about honesty for nearly three months. Last week, people were talking about all the bad shit that happened to them when they were kids and all the bad things they'd done. Myers was picking up steam as he spoke. I finally told the group. Well, I can top all you sons of bitches. I done put a damn man on death row by lying in damn court. He paused dramatically. After I told them all what I'd done, everybody said I needed to make it right. That's what I'm trying to do. He paused again to let me take it all in. Hey, y'all gonna buy me a damn soda or am I just gonna sit here all day looking at them damn vending machines and pouring my heart out? He smiled for the first time since we'd been together. Michael jumped up and walked over to buy him a drink. Hey, Jimmy, sun-kissed orange if they got it. For more than two hours, I asked questions and Ralph gave answers. By the end, he did, in fact, blow my mind. He told us about being pressured by the sheriff and the ABI and threatened with the death penalty if he didn't testify against McMillan. He made accusations of official corruption, talked about his involvement in the Pittman murder, and revealed his earlier attempts to recant. He ultimately admitted that he had never known anything about the Morrison murder, had no clue what had happened to her or anything else at all about that crime. He said that he had told lots of people from the D.A. on down that he had been coerced to testify falsely against Walter. If even half of what he said was true, there were a lot of people involved in this case who knew from the mouth of his sole accuser that Walter McMillan had nothing to do with the murder of Rhonda Morrison. Ralph was on his third sun-kissed orange when he stopped his stream of confessions, leaned forward, and beckoned us closer. He spoke in a whisper to Michael and me. You know, they'll try to kill you if you actually get to the bottom of everything. We would learn that Ralph could never let a meeting end without dropping some final dramatic insight, observation, or prediction. I reassured him that we would be careful.
On the drive back to Montgomery, Michael and I debated how much we could trust Myers. What he told us about the Macmillan case all made sense. His story at trial was so implausible that it was easy to believe that he had been pressured to testify falsely. The corruption narrative that he seemed intent to expose was harder to assess. Myers claimed to have committed the Vicki Pittman murder under the direction of another local sheriff. He laid out to us a widespread conspiracy involving police, drug dealing, and money laundering. It was quite a tale. We spent weeks following up on the leads that Myers had provided. He admitted to us that he had never met Walter and only knew of him through Karen Kelly. He also confirmed that he had been spending time with Karen Kelly and that she was involved in the Pittman murder. So we decided to confirm the story with Kelly herself, now a prisoner at the Tutwiler Prison for Women, where she was serving a 10-year sentence for the Pittman murder. Tutwiler is one of the state's oldest prisons and the only prison in the state for women. It has fewer security restrictions than the men's prisons. When Michael and I drove up to the gate, we could see incarcerated women hovering outside the prison entrance with no officers in view. The women eyed Michael and me carefully before greeting us with curious smiles. We were subjected to a very cursory pat-down in the prison lobby by a male officer before being admitted through the barred gate to the main prison area. We were told to wait for Karen Kelly in a very small room that was empty except for a square table. Kelly was a slender white woman in her mid-thirties who walked into the room wearing no restraints or handcuffs. She seemed surprisingly comfortable, shaking my hand confidently before nodding at Michael. She was wearing makeup, including a garish shade of green eyeshadow. She sat down and announced that Walter had been framed and that she was grateful finally to be able to tell someone. When we began with our questions, she quickly confirmed that Myers had not known Walter before the Morrison murder. Ralph is a fool. He thought he could trust those crooked cops, and he let them talk him into saying he was involved with a crime he didn't know anything about. He's done enough bad that he didn't need to go around making stuff up. Though she was calm at the outset of our interview, she became increasingly emotional as she started detailing the events surrounding the case. She wept more than once. She spoke with remorse about how her life had spiraled out of control when she started abusing drugs. I'm not a bad person, but I've made some really foolish, bad decisions. She was especially upset that Walter was on death row. I feel like I'm the reason that he's in prison. He's just not the kind of person that would kill somebody. I know that. Then her tone turned bitter. I made a lot of mistakes, but those people should be ashamed. They've done just as much bad as I've done. Sheriff Tate only had one thing on his mind. He just kept saying, Why you want to sleep with niggers? Why you want to sleep with niggers? It was awful, and he's awful. She paused and looked down at her hands. But I'm awful, too. Look at what I've done, she said sadly. I began getting letters from Karen Kelly after our visit. She wanted me to tell Walter how sorry she was about what had happened to him. She said she still cared about him a great deal. It wasn't clear what we could expect from Karen if we got a new hearing in court, other than to confirm that Ralph had never met Walter. It was clear that she saw Walter as the kind of person who would never kill someone violently, which was consistent with the opinion of everyone who knew him. She hadn't dealt with the police much around the Morrison murder and didn't have useful information pointing to their misconduct.
aside from being able to show how they were provoked by her relationship with Walter. Michael and I decided to spend more time looking into the Pittman murder. We thought it might give us some perspective on the coercion that was leveled against Myers. We now knew that because Myers had recanted his accusations against Walter before the trial, the state might not be entirely surprised to hear that he was denying McMillan's involvement in the crime. We needed as much objective evidence as we could find to confirm the truth of what Myers was now saying. Understanding the Pittman case and documenting the other demonstrably false things Myers had asserted would strengthen our evidence. Vicki Pittman's murder had been all but forgotten. Monroe County officials had reduced Myers and Kelly's sentences in exchange for Myers' testimony against Walter. How they managed to reduce sentences in the Pittman case, which was outside their jurisdiction in another county, was another anomaly. Myers insisted that there were other people besides him and Kelly involved in the Pittman murder, including a corrupt local sheriff. There were still questions about why Vicki Pittman had been killed. Myers told us that her murder had everything to do with drug debts and threats she had made to expose corruption. We had learned from some of the early police reports that the father of Vicki Pittman, Vic Pittman, had been implicated as a suspect in her death. Vicki Pittman had two aunts, Moselle and Anzel, who had been collecting information and desperately seeking answers to the questions surrounding their niece's death. We reached out to them on the off chance that they'd be willing to speak with us and we were astounded when they eagerly agreed to talk. Moselle and Anzel were twin sisters. They were also colorful, opinionated talkers who could be bracingly direct. The two middle-aged, rural white women spent so much time together that they could finish each other's sentences without even seeming to notice. They described themselves as country tough and presented themselves as fearless, relentless women who could not be intimidated. Just so you know... We're gun owners, so don't bring no drama when you come. This was Moselle's last warning before I hung up the phone with her the first time we talked. Michael and I traveled to rural Escambia County and were greeted by the twins. They invited us in, sat us at the kitchen table, and wasted no time. Did your client kill our baby? Moselle asked bluntly. No, ma'am, I sincerely believe he did not. Do you know who did? I sighed. Well, not completely. We've spoken to Ralph Myers and believe that he and Karen Kelly were involved, but Myers insists that there were others involved as well. Moselle looked at Anzel and leaned back. We know there's more involved, said Anzel. The sisters voiced suspicions about their brother and about local law enforcement, but complained that the prosecutor had disrespected and ignored them. Vic Pittman was never formally charged for the murder. They said they were turned away even by the state's victims' rights group. They treated us like we were low-class white trash. They could not have cared less about us. Moselle looked furious as she spoke. I thought they treated victims better. I thought we had some say. Although crime victims had long complained about their treatment in the criminal justice system, by the 1980s a new movement had emerged that resulted in much more responsiveness to the perspective of crime victims and their families. The problem was that not all crime victims received the same treatment. Fifty years ago, the prevailing concept in the American criminal justice system was that everyone in the community is the victim when an offender commits a violent crime. The party that prosecutes a criminal defendant is the state, or the people, or the commonwealth, because when someone is murdered, raped, 
robbed or assaulted, it is an offense against all of us. In the early 1980s, though, states started involving individual crime victims in the trial process and began personalizing crime victims in their presentation of cases. Some states authorized the family members of the victim to sit at the prosecutor's table during trial. 36 states enacted laws that gave victims specific rights to participate in the trial process or to make victim impact statements. In many places, prosecutors started introducing themselves as the lawyer representing a particular victim rather than as a representative of the civic authorities. In death penalty cases, the U.S. Supreme Court said in 1987 that introducing evidence about the status, character, reputation, or family of a homicide victim was unconstitutional. The prevailing idea for decades had been that all victims are equal. That is, the murder of a four year old child of a wealthy parent is no more serious an offense than the murder of a child whose parent is in prison, or even than the murder of the parent in prison. The court prohibited jurors from hearing victim impact statements because they were too inflammatory and introduced arbitrariness into the capital sentencing process. Many critics argued that such evidence would ultimately disempower poor victims, victims who were racial minorities and family members who didn't have the resources to advocate for their deceased loved ones. The court agreed, striking down this kind of evidence in Booth v. Maryland. The court's decision was widely criticized by prosecutors and some politicians, and it seemed to energize the victims' rights movement. Less than three years later, the court reversed itself in Payne v. Tennessee and upheld the rights of states to present evidence about the character of the victim in a capital sentencing trial. With the Supreme Court now giving its constitutional blessing to a more visible and protected role for individual victims in the criminal trial process, Changes in the American criminal justice process accelerated. Millions of state and federal dollars were authorized to create advocacy groups for crime victims in each state. States found countless ways for individual victims in particular crimes to become decision makers and participants. Victims' advocates were added to parole boards, and in most states, they were given a formal role in state and local prosecutors' offices. Victim services and outreach became critical components of the prosecutorial function. Some states made executions more accommodating of victims by increasing the number of people from the victim's family who could watch the execution. State legislatures enacted harsh new punishments for crimes, naming statutes after particular victims. Megan's Law, for example, which broadened state power to create sex offender registries, was named after Megan Kanka. A seven year old girl who was raped and murdered by a man who had been previously convicted of child molestation. Instead of a faceless state or community, crime victims were featured at trial, and criminal cases took on the dynamics of a traditional civil trial, pitting the family of the victim against the offender. Press coverage hyped the personal nature of the conflict between the offender and specific victim. A new formula emerged for criminal prosecution, especially in high profile cases. In which the emotions, perspectives, and opinions of the victim figured prominently in how criminal cases would be managed. However, as Moselle and Unzel discovered, focusing on the status of the victim became one more way for the criminal justice system to disfavor some people. Poor and minority victims of crime experienced additional victimization by the system itself. The Supreme Court's decision in Payne 
appeared shortly after the court's decision in McCleskey v. Kemp, a case that presented convincing empirical evidence that the race of the victim is the greatest predictor of who gets the death penalty in the United States. The study conducted for that case revealed that offenders in Georgia were 11 times more likely to get the death penalty if the victim was white than if the victim was black. These findings were replicated in every other state where studies about race and the death penalty took place. In Alabama, even though 65% of all homicide victims were black, nearly 80% of the people on death row were there for crimes against victims who were white. Black defendant and white victim pairings increased the likelihood of a death sentence even more. Many poor and minority victims complained that they were not getting calls or support from local police and prosecutors. Many weren't included in the conversations about whether a plea bargain was acceptable or what sentence was appropriate. If your family had lost a loved one to murder or had to suffer the anguish of rape or serious assault, your victimization might be ignored if you had loved ones who were incarcerated. The expansion of victims' rights ultimately made formal what had always been true. Some victims are more protected and valued than others. More than anything else, it was the lack of concern and responsiveness by police, prosecutors, and victim services providers that devastated Moselle and Anzel. You're the first two people to come to our house and spend time with us talking about Vicky, Anzel told us. After nearly three hours of hearing their heartbreaking reflections, we promised to do what we could to find out who else was involved in their niece Vicky's death. We were getting to the point where, without access to police records and files, we wouldn't be able to make more progress. Because the case was now pending on direct appeal, the state had no obligation to let us see those records and files, so we decided to file what is known as a Rule 32 petition, which would put us back in a trial court with the opportunity to present new evidence and obtain discovery, including access to the state's files. Rule 32 petitions are required to include claims that were not raised at trial or on appeal and that could not have been raised at trial or on appeal. They are the vehicle to challenge a conviction based on ineffective counsel, the state's failure to disclose evidence, and most important, new evidence of innocence. Michael and I put a petition together that asserted all of these claims, including police and prosecutorial misconduct, and filed it in the Monroe County Circuit Court. The document, which alleged that Walter McMillan was unfairly tried, wrongly convicted, and illegally sentenced, drew a lot of attention in Monroeville. Three years had passed since the trial. The initial confirmation of Walter's conviction on appeal had generated significant press in the community, and most people now felt that Walter's guilt was a settled matter. All there was left to do was wait for an execution date. Judge Key had retired and none of the new Monroe County judges seemed to want to touch our petition, so it was transferred back to Baldwin County under the theory that the post-conviction appeal should be handled in the same county as the initial trial. This made little sense to us because a Monroe County judge had presided over the trial, but there was nothing we could do. Surprisingly, the Alabama Supreme Court agreed to stay our direct appeal process so that the Rule 32 petition could proceed. The general rule was that the direct appeal had to be completed before a post-conviction collateral appeal under Rule 32 could be initiated. By staying the case, 
the Alabama Supreme Court had signaled there was something unusual about Walter's case that warranted further review in the lower courts. The Baldwin County Circuit Judge was now obligated to review our case and could be forced to grant our discovery motions, which would require disclosure of all police and prosecutorial files. This was a very positive development. We needed to have another meeting with the district attorney, Tommy Chapman, but this time we'd be going in armed with a court order to turn over police and prosecutorial files. We would also finally meet, in the flesh, the law enforcement officers involved in Walter's prosecution. The DA's investigator, Larry Eichner, ABI agent Simon Benson, and Sheriff Tom Tate. Chapman suggested that we come to his office in the Monroe County Courthouse so that they could turn over all their files together. We agreed. When we arrived, the men were already there. Tate was a tall, heavy-set white man who had come to the meeting in boots, jeans, and a light shirt. Eichner was another white man in his mid-forties wearing the same outfit. Neither of them smiled much. They greeted Michael and me with the bemused curiosity to which I was getting accustomed. The men knew that we were accusing them of misconduct, but for the most part they remained civil. At one point, Tate told Michael that he knew, as soon as he saw him, that he was a Yankee. Michael smiled and replied, Well, actually, I'm a Nittany Lion. The joke died in the silent room. Undeterred, Michael continued, I went to Penn State. The mascot at Penn State is, We kicked your ass in 78. Tate made the statement as if he just won the lottery. Penn State and the University of Alabama had been football rivals in the 1970s, when both schools had had successful programs and iconic coaches, Bear Bryant at Alabama and Joe Paterno at Penn State. Alabama had defeated the number one ranked Penn State team 14-7 to win the 1978 national championship. Michael, a huge college football fan and Joe Pa devotee, looked at me as if seeking nonverbal permission to say something reckless. I gave him a cautionary stare. To my great relief, he seemed to understand. How much is Johnny D. paying, y'all? Tate asked, using the nickname Walter's friends and family had given him. We work for a nonprofit. We don't charge the people we represent anything. I said as blandly and politely as I could. Well, you're getting money from somewhere to do what you do. I decided to let that pass and move things forward. I thought that it might be a good idea to sign something that verifies that these are all the files you all have on this case. Can we index what you're turning over to us and then all sign? We don't need to do anything that formal, Brian. These men are officers of the court, just like you and I. You should just take the files, Chapman said, apparently sensing that this suggestion had provoked Tate and Eichner. Well, there could be files that have inadvertently been missed or documents that dropped out. I'm just trying to document that what we receive is what you give us, same number of pages, same file folder headings, etc. I'm not questioning anyone's integrity. The hell you ain't, Tate was direct. He looked at Chapman. We can sign something confirming what we give him. I think we may need a record of that more than he does. Chapman nodded. We got the files and left Monroeville with a lot of excitement about what we might find in the hundreds of pages of records we'd received. Back in Montgomery, we eagerly started reviewing them, and not just the files from the police and prosecutors. With our discovery order from the court, we were able to collect records from Taylor Hardin, the mental health facility where Myers was sent after he first refused to testify.
We got the ABI file from Simon Benson, the only black ABI agent in South Alabama, as he had proudly told us. We got Monroeville City Police Department records and other city files. We even got Escambia County records and exhibits on the Vicki Pittman murder. The files were astonishing. We might have been influenced by the pain of Moselle and Anzel, or drawn in by the elaborate conspiracies that Ralph Myers had described. But we soon started asking questions about some of the law enforcement officers whose names kept coming up around the Pittman murder. We even decided to talk to the FBI about some of what we had learned. It wasn't long after that when the bomb threat started. Chapter 8 All God's Children Uncried Tears, a poem by Ian Manuel at the Union Correctional Institution. Imagine teardrops left uncried, from pain trapped inside, waiting to escape through the windows of your eyes. Why won't you let us out? The tears question the conscience. Relinquish your fears and doubts and heal yourself in the process. The conscience told the tears, I know you really want me to cry, but if I release you from bondage and gaining your freedom, you die. The tears gave it some thought before giving the conscience an answer. If crying brings you to triumph, then dying's not such a disaster. Trina Garnett was the youngest of twelve children living in the poorest section of Chester, Pennsylvania, a financially distressed municipality outside of Philadelphia. The extraordinarily high rates of poverty, crime, and unemployment in Chester intersected with the worst-ranked public school system among Pennsylvania's 501 districts. Close to 46% of the city's children were living below the federal poverty level. Trina's father, Walter Garnett, was a former boxer whose failed career had turned him into a violent, abusive, alcoholic, well-known to local police for throwing a punch with little provocation. Trina's mother, Edith Garnett, was sickly after bearing so many children, some of whom were conceived during rapes by her husband. The older and sicker Edith became, the more she found herself a target of Walter's rage. He would regularly punch, kick, and verbally abuse her in front of the children. Walter would often go to extremes, stripping Edith naked and beating her until she writhed on the floor in pain while her children looked on fearfully. When she lost consciousness during the beatings, Walter would shove a stick down her throat to revive her for more abuse. Nothing was safe in the Garnett home. Trina once watched her father strangle her pet dog into silence because it wouldn't stop barking. He beat the animal to death with a hammer and threw its limp body out of a window. Trina had twin sisters, Lynn and Linda, who were a year older than her. They taught her to play invisible when she was a small child to shield her from their father when he was drunk and prowling their apartment with his belt, stripping the children naked and beating them randomly. Trina was taught to hide under the bed or in a closet and remain as quiet as possible. Trina showed signs of intellectual disabilities and other troubles at a young age. When she was a toddler, she became seriously ill after ingesting lighter fluid when she was left unattended. At the age of five, she accidentally set herself on fire, resulting in severe burns over her chest, stomach, and back. She spent weeks in a hospital enduring painful skin grafts that left her terribly scarred. Edith died when Trina was just nine. 
Trina's older sisters tried to take care of her, but when Walter began sexually abusing them, they fled. After the older siblings left home, Walter's physical and sexual abuse focused on Trina, Lynn, and Linda. The girls ran away from home and began roaming the streets of Chester. Trina and her sisters would eat out of garbage cans. Sometimes they would not eat for days. They slept in parks and public bathrooms. The girls stayed with their older sister Edie until Edie's husband began sexually abusing them. Their older siblings and aunts would sometimes provide temporary shelter, but the living situation would get disrupted by violence or death, and so Trina would find herself wandering the streets again. Her mother's death, the abuse, and the desperate circumstances all exacerbated Trina's emotional and mental health problems. She would sometimes become so distraught and ill that her sisters would have to find a relative to take her to the hospital. But she was penniless and was never allowed to stay long enough to become stable or recover. Late at night in August 1976, 14-year-old Trina and her friend, 16-year-old Frances Newsom, climbed through the window of a row house in Chester. The girls wanted to talk to the boys who lived there. The mother of these boys had forbidden her children from playing with Trina, but Trina wanted to see them. Once she climbed into the house, Trina lit matches to find her way to the boys' room. The house caught fire. It spread quickly, and two boys who were sleeping in the home died from smoke asphyxiation. Their mother accused Trina of starting the fire intentionally, but Trina and her friend insisted that it was an accident. 